come out to the coast. We'll get together, record a few podcasts. And that's good. Thank you. That's good. Thank you. You need a little Zippo. I got a little lighter. Come on, I'm in a fan. Do you want to you're up though? You're so quiet. Uh, at that moment, he's pretty quiet because he's, he's talking to himself. I mean, look, here are the other options. Okay, I mean, imagine I'm reading a bloody sweatshirt, and this is another one of my infamously good impressions. Mm. <clears throat> now I have a podcast. Ho ho ho! Yeah, there's a lot of pretty famous lines in this movie, Greg. Yeah, you I can... y- I don't. I, I was potty potty kai cast doesn't really feel like a thing. You just had an adverse reaction as if you Didn't tasted like at all. bad food. It's like someone, you know, did smelling salts over my nose. <laughs> Potty Kai Cass? Okay. Yeah, no, good job. It's my favorite line in the movie. Uh, which The one you did. The, uh, yeah. you know, hey, come down to the coast, we'll have a few laughs. This is one of those movies. I mean, I just, I think about this film so much as just like the textbook sort of case study in how do you make someone a movie star right sure how do you take someone who's an actor or even a tv star and make them undeniably a movie star and there are like 15 moments in this movie that being one of them where you're like this guy just his stock just shot up 10 percent with that one line reading sure he's got he's got the secret sauce yeah yeah and and they know how to frame him how to use him and all of that I want to. Our guest uh, should start talking right away. Yes, um, to be clear, he needs no introduction. This. He's leaning all the way in. <laughs> I'm waiting uh, for my moment. I, I, I didn't want to interrupt because you guys were in a flow, but I, I have a suggestion for the, the title. Flow. After hearing, go after ahead. Hearing those, please those uh, attempts. Uh, try hard. Well, well, that's, that's, well that's, that, that's, is that is Griffin Newman. Basically, my energy overall. Um, good all God! The time. Good yep. God! You hey, tried. I tried hard. I tried hard. Um, a vengeance! I did. I did. I came in spitefully. I never saw this movie without him being a movie star to me. That's Same. the thing. I didn't Same. have that experience of like, oh shit, like you know, like which maybe our guest did. Maybe I, I have to assume you watched the transformation. I, let me in tell real you, time. kids. Yeah, I am fifty-three years old. Congratulations! So I have watched the entire arc yeah of bruce willis's career so first time i notice him is of course like most people in miami vice where he plays mm. like a bad guy yeah. sure um i also notice him in an episode of the new twilight zone called shatter day okay so you were like um, pinning this guy early he was yeah popping for you i'm telling you you can jump on youtube and yeah. watch just enter shatter day his performance is is fantastic that run of twilight zone which was done in the 80s long after rod serling had passed was like maybe two seasons a really strong run of episodes yeah. and he popped from that as well and then right i guess on the heels of that he got david addison now i watched yeah. moonlighting with my mom every every week i think it was like nine o'clock on wednesdays or tuesdays or something like that and fell in love with this guy at my first impression of bruce willis as David Addison on Moonlighting was, oh, he's a TV version of Bill Murray. And Bill Murray yeah. came from TV, yep, but did. he had graduated to become, you know, Peter Venkman or, or he you was know, exclusively a movie Meatballs. star at that point. Yes. yes. So he was the, um, the, the leading man who, uh, in terms of that character, um, be it, the the Bill Murray archetype or David Addison, mm-hmm. the original man child, yeah, um, who would not grow up. Those characters infected my work. Those characters from the eighties infected my work from the nineties. So Randall, Brody, 
Banky, they're all the children of of um, Winger from Strikes, oh, yeah. played by Bill Murray, and David Addison from Moonlighting. Like I loved, I loved the character, and I loved the performance so much. And Bruce was from Penns Grove, New Jersey. He's from many places because I mean, he's military brat. I think say. he was born in Germany, but, but but kind of a Jersey Hall of Fame guy. Quietly, I don't feel like he is talked as much. That's a Jersey guy. In the Jersey framework. But right. I think that is key. I, I trade on Jersey as a currency. Yes. I have my entire career. <laughs> yes. He, he does not. I had to dig that. I, I mean, I knew that myself. And when I met him for the first time on the Live Free or Die Hard on the Die yeah. Hard sequel, um, that was one of the things we talked about. I was like, the pride of Penn's Grove. And he was real taken aback. He's like, that's right. I am a Jersey boy. But he wasn't born there, right? I think he, he was, was born, born in Germany. He was born on so. a military base in Germany, right? Because his... Uh, yeah. Right, his mother was German and his dad was a soldier, and right, and then they they moved to Jersey when he was like a little kid. Right, like and two. then he was there until yeah. he moves to Hollywood, basically. Right, or that's right. Well, no, he, no, New York he goes, no, he goes to New York. He goes to Philly and New York. Okay. Oh yeah, you're right. Yep. He bartends. He was for a bartender at Kamikaze. He knew Linda Fiorentino. Like when I worked with wow. Linda Fiorentino on Dogma, she's yeah. like, oh my god, I, me and Bruce used to bartend together. Um, yeah. and that was before I'd ever met him. I'd meet him years later. I mean, that uh, that's pretty cool. Like, the, imagine the two the of the energy walls. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that's that's cool to imagine. But also, think about it. What are the chances that two people behind a bar both go on to like, uh, yeah, movie like movie stardom, stardom. like right. genuine movie yeah. stardom? Right. Obviously, Linda's was shorter, but like, still, like you know, in blockbusters that people love forever. Yes, get a get a job at that bar. Is what it's, I'm saying. it's also one of those things. It's like, right, that's like the joke. You go to the bar and it's like, well, I'm not really a bartender. I'm an actor, right? But I feel right. like I've heard accounts from people who went to that bar where it's like you walked in there and you knew this guy was going to be a star. Even when he was yeah. struggling to get work or he was getting work, but it wouldn't stick or whatever. He was kind of like a legendary. This guy's just got charisma bouncing off of him. Dude, Riz, as as the kids he, he used to say, say ten minutes ago, arguably <laughs> rizzed was, up from birth. He was rizzed up. He was a riz rizzed up and out of control. <laughs> um, and that's what he, we're here you got to say. remember, kids. Like a lot of people, of course, Bruce Willis, Die Hard, and, and yes, naturally the movie career. But yeah. Bruce was so huge that one career couldn't contain him, and he became a music sensation. Yes, uh, he recorded two albums under the name of Bruno, and those albums, well, the first one particularly dropped right around the time that I was learning to drive. My friend Ernie O'Donnell, um, who runs the yeah, yeah. Smod Castle Cinemas, our movie theater, uh, he was the first one of us to drive, this big old scout and stuff. And so he had, like, uh, put in a custom cassette player. The whole vehicle is this big old piece of shit, but the cassette player was cherry and brand new. However, it busted with a Bruce Willis tape in it, so oh. that was the only tape we'd listened to for a long time. It was Bruno sides, constantly, like, yeah. Bruno constantly, but we didn't care because we like absolutely adored Bruno. That's um, the thing. I, I think I don't know if Ernie went to the second album, but I bought the second <laughs> album as well. What What Don't Kill You Makes You Strong was that the Return of Bruno or was Return, no, Return of Bruno, Bruno is, is the, the first debut. album? Yeah, the Return of Bruno is the debut album okay. that has uh, Jack uh, Jackpot on it, and what was the what was Respect the Yourself? Uh -huh. Respect Yourself was the big single, and yeah. and it was. Huge. It wasn't yeah. like, oh, let's indulge this guy as an actor and he likes to sing now. That song was huge, played on MTV constantly and whatnot. It was a big radio hit as well. So there was a moment where that dude had TV, movies, wine coolers, and music. Yeah. Why? Seagrams, 
Golden wine coolers, seagrams. Golden wine coolers. Go look it up on YouTube. That I'm, is I, I've got it. I've got it right here. Yep, there they note are. Note for note on the porch. On the porch. But yeah. it is it yeah. is that fascinating thing, and I think I I don't know. It's like Dave and I were too young to experience this in real yeah. time, right? But as like culturally obsessed dudes, we're like growing up watching Die Hard at our own coming of age and then digging in and being like, what was the context for Bruce Willis in this moment? Like, we understand all of this from a distance, but you're sort of like, the version of this happening today is so different because there are 8 billion outlets, there are social media, there's so many different kind of like branded partnerships where you're just like, no, there were like strict gatekeepers in each of these positions and a limited amount of slots. Yeah. And Willis had been trying to break through for a while. And then when it hits, suddenly people are like, we'll take you in any form we can get. We yeah. want as much yeah. Bruce Willis in the culture as possible. We became inundated, man. It was just uh, all Willis all the time. But nobody complained. People were, no. were well into it. No, it was good times. And, and he was very earthy. You know what I'm saying? Like this you is knew the whole he thing. Was not to the manner born. He, he the bartender part of his, yeah. uh, le, you know, mythos was was laid in there thick, and so he was very man of the people, which also helped his his ascendancy. But I think the key factor, and he, it's something he should be shouted out for because in this era it was very difficult, and very few made the leap. He started in the medium of television, which mm-hmm. puts your face into everybody's home. This was in a, an era where, yeah. like, it was not uncommon for 20 to 30 million people to watch a show or something. And like why that. go to the movies and pay when you can get Bruce Willis at home for free was sort of the line of thinking that would trap people on television. There were TV actors mm-hmm. and there were movie actors. And very seldomly did one successfully leap to the other. But he would, him, Robin Williams and Bruce Willis were two of the first in the 80s that made that jump so successfully that most people don't remember they came from television. Yeah. But like when we were making Goodwill Hunting, name drop, <laughs> uh, Robin Williams said, like we were, as we were going into the bar in Toronto, shoot the people across the street going, Mork, Mork. And you're like, this, this is like 15 years after yeah. Mork. And I was like, Mork, man, that, that's you can't hear that anymore. He goes, I hear that all the time. I was like, really? I, but it was so long ago. I would imagine be like, good morning, Vietnam. And he goes, TV makes you family. Right. Yeah. And yeah. I am family to like a lot of these people. And it was a very revelatory thought because I, I I've never been a TV star. I've never been a movie star, but I've got peripheral experience with each. But this was like somebody who like Mork for Mork blew the fuck up. And then that dude was able to successfully parlay that into a movie career thanks to George Roy Hill and the world according to Garp. Yeah. Bruce Willis, like for this era, it should have gone no better than like moonlighting for him and a series of TV movies and and stuff like that. Well, I mean, he, yes, skyrocketed out. And we know why, right? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's this film is just the perfect vehicle. Why this film? Well, I look, I want to introduce the show. Introduce the show. Because I think you teed this up perfectly. I want to throw out this one anecdote. I was I was rewatching the movie this morning with commentary. McTiernan talked about how many times he turned this movie down. And this is one of those great, like, kind of miracle movies 
where everything could have gone wrong and so nearly went wrong and all the pieces come together perfectly at the last second. But Tiernan turned it down a bunch of times. Every other actor turned it down. Bruce is the last guy on the list. But the time McTiernan finally says yes to the script, they were, they'd, he'd turn it down, they'd rewrite it, they'd send it back to him, he'd go no. They'd turn it down, rewrite, send it back to him, no. And he's like, the draft I finally said yes to was because on page four, they had written in the detail that when Argyle picks him up at the airport, he says, it's my first day driving limo. And he goes, no worries, it's my first time riding in one. And then cut to he's sitting shotgun up front with the limo. And he went, this is the guy I want to build a movie around. This tells you right. everything you need to know about this type of guy. And the audience is going to like him immediately if he refuses to sit in the back of the limo. You just you gave me fucking chills, dude, yeah. like because I'm just remembering that moment and going like, you're right, like the connectivity and think about it. I'm, when I see this movie, I'm what, 17 years old. Um, coincidentally, plug, plug, I see it in the movie theater I now own. Oh, wow. It was the Atlantic, the yeah. Atlantic Cinema in Atlantic Islands back in the day. Now it's Montcastle Cinema. So when I like I was just there doing shows this weekend, I was in the same theater where I sat in the back of the theater and the like one of the campaign, the marketing campaigns is it will blow you out the back of the theater. Yeah. Um, and we were in the back and it did like blow us away. <laughs> but um, I, I going to see it in real time when it actually opened, this was like a guy who I loved on TV, but the whole world didn't necessarily think of him as like yeah, a this movie is, star. This is a right. flyer making him. This guy is definitely not as some guarantee. A huge risk. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it was like for them, I think if I remember the story correctly, he, they got him like, you know, Moonlighting had just happened the first season or something like that, maybe the second season, but he had a small window to shoot. He was the one that was available and his agents were able to like get him they got real him money. Five yeah. million bucks. I mean, we'll talk about We'll get that. into all yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, but that look, was a big deal. Deep right, conversation. You know, I'll follow your lead. Sure. Sorry, sorry. Look, this no, is, this is after all a podcast about filmography. Thank you, Griffin. It's called Thank Blank you. Check with Griffin and David. There you go. I'm I'm David. I'm Griffin. <laughs> yes. I flipped it up in that case. I gave you the space to say it first. It's fine. Uh, it's a podcast about directors who have massive success early on in their careers, say, making Die Hard as their third movie ever. A Die Hard. An right? early yeah. Die Hard. Yeah. Uh, and are given a series of blank checks to make whatever crazy passion projects they want. Sometimes those checks clear. And sometimes they tie a fire hose around their chest and swing outside of a building as it's exploding baby. It's pretty fucking cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is Die Hard. We're, uh, we're talking John McTiernan. What's the miniseries called? It's called Pod Hard with Avenge Cast. Right. Our guest today returning to the show, writer, director, filmmaker, raconteur, podcaster, mm. movie theater mm. owner, mm. and co-star of Live Free or Die Hard, Kevin Smith. That's true. I texted you some. I'm, I'm I'm here because I've worked with Bruce Willis well, and Alan Rickman. This is true. Yeah. I texted you some months ago and we were just texting back and forth. I said, by the way, got to get you on blank check again. We're doing McTiernan. And similar to last time where I said doing Raimi, I didn't even suggest anything to you. I just said, here's the, the platter. I'm curious to see what you take to. And you said, you know, I was in a diehard movie and I did direct both bruce willis and alan rickman and i went look i i'm very aware of all this i didn't know if that made you too close to want to talk about it but i certainly would love to hear you get into this and i've heard you so many times over the years talk about how totemic this film was for you and those two guys and their careers um and and yeah and you have so many different perspectives around this film 
I, I talking about, I mean, granted I do have like, I, I aggregated from fan to professional who got to work with the two stars of the movie. But first and foremost, I was before I was a filmmaker, I was just a movie guy. I just yeah. loved movies. And so this was one of the movies I loved and like everybody. And, um, it, it, I just loved it enough that later on in life, when people were like, uh, who do you want to put in a thing? I was like, what about, what about that? What about that? Yeah. What about them? So it, it's, I'm, I feel like this, if anyone's like, oh, he's going to roast. Well, <laughs> no, this isn't what that, that's about at all. Like I'm here to testify as both fan and a filmmaker um, yes, who later worked writer. with the two giants that made this movie. But I, honestly, if I could have worked with anybody who worked on Die Hard, it might have been McTiernan. Like, he is the unsung, unsung star of yeah. this movie. Yes. Everyone talks about Bruce. Everyone talks about Alan Rickman. This was the movie where most folks, unless you were from the UK, discovered Alan Rickman. 100%. Oh, yeah. This is his first movie role, period. That's what's insane, is he had done a yeah. tremendous amount of theater, both in the UK and on Broadway. He had done a little bit of TV, but mostly British TV. Yep. And this is his first movie, period. Talk about another film that perfectly sets someone up for the rest of their career. Makes them iconic yes. immediately. Well, I mean, acting comes down to choices, right? It's a job of choices. As an actor, as you know, is like, I'm going to choose to say it like this. And you hope it lands in a way that connects with the audience, makes them forget that all this is bullshit. And for a moment, they buy truth and reality in it. So the job literally comes down to choice. This guy made some of the most interesting fucking choices yeah. you can while making pretend, particularly with the, I mean, across his yes. entire career, yes. but definitely with Hans Gruber. Like we had seen big bads and Euro trash villains in movies uh, before for years. This dude took a completely different approach where like, there were moments where you're like, I kind of like him better than the real guy, the, the hero. Yeah. Like yeah. he's, he's charming as fuck. He's got the you, Riz. You kind of rizzed want, up. He's kinda, also rizzed up. They should have called him Alan Rizman. You kind of, <laughs> if, if he didn't shoot, not that, not to dive right into it, and yes. we, we can pull back, but like if he didn't shoot um, Joe Takagi, uh huh, you would one hundred percent be rooting for them to get away with it. Yeah. Like, yes, you yes. don't want everyone, anyone to die, and you Is want there a movie John where to everyone get everyone can win. But right, you'd be kind of like, I kind of want them to open the vault and get the money. Is there like, an inside man like, ending? Fuck, these, <laughs> fuck this company, but whatever. Especially, Who cares? especially like, in this day and age, don't you think if they tried to do Die Hard now, the audience would be like, Yeah, yeah yes. but because he shoots Joe and you like Joe, yes, you, he's like two scenes with that guy, but you're kind of like, this seems like a good guy. And he shoots him so callously. That's enough for you to be like, well, I don't. But it's yeah. another smart yeah. story calculation of like McTiernan knows that's the one thing that's going to make you. Oh, no, 100%. And yeah. we'll t I want to ask you about McTiernan. Yeah, Kevin, did you ever interact with him over the years? Like, never. It's, uh, it's I, kind of on the downswing you know, when you're on the upswing, I guess. Yeah. There is a DGA, you yeah. know, the Directors Guild. Or and he would imagine like, Oh, you guys all hang out and sit around and fucking smoke cigars. <laughs> I imagine well, it no. being like the SNL Five Timers Club, where every great director is there with a smoking jacket. <laughs> right. Um, having been, a, they dragged me into the DJ years ago. I didn't join the DJ for years in the beginning of my career because I, for some reason, I felt like, hey man, I'm an indie outsider. And also, like Robert would jump in and out, like whenever right. they would yeah, let yeah. him do a thing. Yeah. He was like, well, I'm quitting. And Tarantino so. too. All the Miramax so, guys were kind of. DGA resistant. It, yeah. It just didn't like, it didn't, it, 
there was no to me like i met with the head of the dga east and west because they were like trying to get me to join this is like 2000 i want to say four or something like that and um I, you know they were like you've you're deep into your career look at all the movies you've made like it's kind of weird that you're not in the dga and i was like yeah that's i mean i i don't know i've, I've made it this far without i came from indie film like i you know i, I kind of do my own thing then they were like this is the money that you left on the table that you would have made if you'd been part of the DGA <laughs> from your second phone call. Yeah. And it was, it, it was, it was a substantial, <laughs> thing. it was seven figures. And yeah. you know, for, I was like, wait, what, where'd yeah. that money go? And they're like, not to you. Yeah. Um, so you I like eventually joined. But, Kevin? <laughs> yeah. This, yeah. Uh, honestly, only this year did somebody explain to me that I have a pension because of the DGA. Yeah. yeah. Cause I was talking about, we were getting ready to make, um, this summer at that movie theater at Spock Castle mm -hmm. we made a movie called the 430 movie. We got a, a um, waiver um, during mm -hmm. the strike to shoot. So um, while we were uh, shooting this flick, I was talking to Liz Destro, who's my producer, uh, along with Jordan Monsanto, to produce, two of them produced like the last four movies and stuff. And I was like, well, if we have any troubles, I'll just, you know, jump out of the DJ. And she goes, you can't do things like that. Like you're too close to a pension. And I was like, what pension? And she's like, well, when, what do you think that money that you pay in the DJ was for? And I was like, I don't be a member of a secret society. And she's like, no. <laughs> Get the ring, the Dakota pension. ring? Yeah, I was like, I don't know. The, the smoke, the aforementioned smoking jacket. But um, she was like, no, Kevin, like you being in the Writers Guild, you get a pension. You being in SAG, you get a pension. You being in the DJ, you get a pension because we don't work in a traditional world like most people that work for a company get a pension when they retire. So they set these things up. This is what your guilds are for, yeah. you know, to look out for you in your old age. And that, none of that had ever processed prior. Again, I came up through indie films. So like that, that just felt very like corporate structure to me. But now that I'm a 53 year old man, I'm like, do you mean I'm going to get free money in 10 <laughs> years? Like, this sounds amazing. And they're like, it's not free money. It's money you've been yeah, paying you've into been this paying thing. It, right. This, this is, this so, is the, the, anyway, the bargain we Structured make. piggy right. bank. Yeah. Yes. But back to the point, never met John McTiernan yeah. <laughs> at all these DGA meetings that we never went to. It's, and I wish I would have. I mean, we, we all know he got into trouble at one point. Yes. Right? Later on. Yeah, um, a little that trouble. Had nothing to do with nothing to do with Die Hard, but almost no. sounded Die Hard. <laughs> it was a little Die Hard. It was a, a Gru, <laughs> Gruberian. Yes, <laughs> there was there was a uh, Hans on yeah. uh, approach, so to speak. But is, I never met him. Yeah. But he is the unsung star of this movie. I don't think in many other hands this movie no. is the same as the uh, and it's I uh, believe me I'm, I'm not taking anything away from the screenwriters but it was Stephen D'Souza how many people wrote this Yes two, although two that's people a point are credited Jeff Stewart yeah. and well Jeff Stewart and Stephen D'Souza are the big writers yeah. yeah yeah right and and being it being the 80s probably went through a lot of writers yeah. hands yes. that they're not even credited and stuff but it feels to me as somebody who's been doing the job for 30 years and I know um, I, I'll set aside this disclaimer. Last time I was on Blank Check, man, like I got to meet the audience afterwards and my mm -hmm. socials and stuff. And uh, they were very generous and, and lovely, uh, you know, but the compliments were like, you know, I always thought this guy was a fucking idiot, but he was actually, <laughs> it was that kind of thing. You know? So, I, I, you know, any, any boost, any plug is a boost. So I was never like, well, I wish the compliments were better than that. I'm happy to make a convert. Sure. Stuff. Um, so that all being said, just to kind of lay out there for the potential uh, Cine East audience. Um, meeting McTiernan, uh, for me, would have been an education because this is a guy who I feel, in my 
I've been doing the job for 30 years, but you may not like the movies I've done. In my yeoman-like opinion, I feel like he shaped the movie. I feel I the presence yes. of yeah. the author, yes. the, the director as author, in a way that you feel on, like, you know, Zucker Brothers movies in the back, Shyamalan movies. Uh, you, you know, just, it was that specific touch, McTeen, as they called them, that made I, Die Hard what it was. That element that you pointed to early on, where he read in the script, he was like, he's going to sit up front. I know how to do this That's story. the story. I think, yeah. Yeah, that's right. pretty amazing. I mean, when you think about Predator, where he had a lot of influence and he's a crucial part, but like that's a Schwarzenegger movie, right? It's right. a Schwarzenegger movie and he's fighting in real time to he's get the respect to be with able the to fucking do jungle and he's ways. dealing with special effects nonsense. Right. This one, it's like, this is not a Bruce Willis movie or an Alan Ward. You know, the, those guys are are not no, you have power, two untested not guys. enough. Yeah. And like it is a Joel Silver movie, right? Or what? You know, like that. Yeah. That is a, a big personality, but still, like he has a lot of muscle now. Like he can, yeah. Not only that, like Joel Silver, arguably the biggest name at this point attached to the movie, but also Joel Silver is going like, I just was in the jungle with this guy. He's a little bit right. I, I saw how this worked out. I want to be in the McTiernan business. That's a smart bet. And a thing that we found interesting about covering McTiernan is so often now I'm saying to people, we're doing McTiernan next, and they're going, who's McTiernan? Or, like, what else did he do besides Die Hard? There is this weird degree of him being a little bit anonymous, and I often find as well that people will assign his movies to other directors. Sure. They'll be like, I thought Tony Scott directed that. Right, right, right. Mm. The other big agents. I, I mean, he had like a, you know, he had like a Penny Marshall one, two, yes. three hits in a row that define the culture. And like, it, it's not too far from Die Hard that we get to Hunt for Red October, right? It is. His first movie is Nomads. And then it is Predator, Die Hard, Hunt for Red October in a row. Yeah. And they're like, yeah. The, the, three the, movies that people still, I mean, other than, of course, the cinema podcast, three movies that are still talked about by kitchen sinkers people that like yes, don't yeah. live and breathe entertainment like oh it's on tnt i'll watch that or i'll spin that on netflix in four years he makes those movies in 87 years, to he makes them right yeah, away yeah. and and in his attitude when he talks about these things and i it's been fascinating because it's not like there is this degree to which he's publicly a little bit anonymous but he still does tons of interviews he records like new commentary tracks and whatever i've been trying to read as much and watch as much and listen to as much in prepping these episodes and he speaks very transparently about everything but he's also got that like old school studio director sort of like john hawks they they pass me a script if i think it's okay i shoot it you know and yep. his decisions are very intelligent and thoughtful and big picture and he understands every capacity of what each element of the medium can do and uh, how to use it for his own storytelling and all of that. But he's also very unpretentious about all of this, which I think his lack of self-mythologizing his own authorship perhaps, like, feeds into it. Um, but, but yeah, this movie is, it, it, it is really, yes, quietly his star vehicle as much as it is a, a Willis and a, uh, a Rickman star vehicle. Who would be his modern-day equivalent? Like, you material. can't go, like, oh, Chris Nolan, because Chris Nolan, like, generates no. a lot of his own it, material. It's Christopher McQuarrie, but in a weird way. Yeah, like, McQuarrie. But Chris like, McQuarrie's also a writer. Jean called yes. it Sarah a little bit, but he never quite got to, like, the, you know. 
No, when I hear, like, Chris McQuarrie doing these hours-long Empire Magazine podcast interviews after each Mission Impossible movie comes out, when you hear him break down his process, it feels very similar to the way McTiernan talks about his understanding of how an audience is going to track things in real time, which is the main thing both of these guys are concerned with. Nothing they do is for flash or or showy for the sake of um, trying to uh, make uh, call attention to their own style, sure. show off their skill as a filmmaker. It is like, what do I need this audience to understand or feel in this moment? And what is the most elegant, effective, and entertaining way to do that? And let me also take you back to that era when marketing a director was not yeah. A priority. You right. knew some directors' names, of course, like George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, you know, Clint Eastwood went from actor to director. Exceptions to Kevin the Costner when he did, you right. know, uh, when he also did the transition. Generally speaking, uh, no studio was like, let's put the filmmaker out there to talk about it. So they never really sold the filmmaker. That was something that feels like it started in the late 80s, early 90s. Really came from indie film culture where you don't have stars in a movie. So who is going to go out and promote your movie? Who best to speak about it than the filmmaker who had enough passion to get it made in the first place? And so during the 90s, you start to see the ascendancy of the director as a personality. And that's the era that I came up in. So he doesn't. He comes up in late 80s when a studio director is like, who directed? I don't know. It doesn't matter. There is a star. Nothing on this poster that's like from the director of Predator or anything like that. Right. They could could put that on there. That's wild. That it's not even, I wouldn't imagine they put his name on there. But from the director of Predator feels like a pretty good marketing tactic. Yes, yes and no, though. But Predator is a very distinct sci-fi right. yeah, film. Yeah, they might be I worried. Think with this, right. they're like, we don't want anyone thinking there's lizards and shit. In this. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, and Predator is, you know, Predator was designed as a B-picture. Sure. But, you know, a, a, a skillful B-picture as Arnold was in this transition point of his career. Die Hard is intending to be an A-picture. It's a summer blockbuster. It's it's, right. it's Fox's summer blockbuster. But, but this is a high-end stake uh, of an action eight. movie. So Part of the way it was marketed in the era as well, and they didn't go very far with this, but I distinctly remember the sell was um, probably most of the audience not overly familiar with the Irwin Allen disaster movies of the seventies, right? but they had passed and gone out of vogue, but there was a piece of marketing at the beginning of Die Hard that it will blow you out the back of the theater. That was about the power of, of the story itself. And, and there, they, there was a likening to disaster movies, which hadn't been in vogue in a while, but there's a bit of, towering inferno to the idea of him like being up in up in nakatomi plaza and stuff so you could see the kind of parallel was there but they didn't deep dive with that very much because no. they hit if i remember the correctly by week two it exploded and became what it is well That's right. there was i mean incredible segue you don't even realize to the the beginning the origins of this movie but there is the really telling thing where the first poster was it will blow you away and it was the building and Bruce's face yeah. wasn't on it and his name wasn't right. on it because <laughs> right. they were a little worried. Are people going to take an action movie seriously if it's got the wine cooler guy's face? Yeah, they on were it. really heavy right. on this building is like 40 stories tall. Guys. Yeah. Like there's going to be action all over it. Like they were really right. hitting the building. And then like week one, week two into release, they were like print up new yeah, posters. Get, get Bruce's Bruce. face next to the building. We're selling Bruce. It's- 
you could see like somebody like almost like the marketing exec toy meeting and big. Yes. Where he's like, what's fun about a building? Right. Like, <laughs> like, so they were like, let's put a guy's face. We in need the to care about the guy. I think in the when building. they put his face in the building by that point. The movie had been out and people yeah, were like, yeah. Bruce Willis is wonderful. And they were like, yeah, put him on the poster. Right. They were selling the thing that people were already buying. They were adjusting the yeah. marketing to what was popular. All right. Roderick Thorpe, detective turned novelist. Mm-hmm. He wrote a book called The Detective, got turned into a movie with Frank Sinatra in 1968. Yeah. In the 70s, Thorpe writes a sequel called Nothing Lasts Forever. Right? That's the name of it. Yes. Inspired yeah. by? Inspired by the towering inferno. Um, uh basically sets you know like what if my guy is in a towering building because the book is glass inferno the movie comes out the same year the book is finally published it's unclear which one he was inspired by drafting off either way it was like maybe it's time for me to do a sequel to my book that sold well and was turned into a movie part of the emphasis is they already made a movie with a big movie star if i write a sequel they'll probably option it right away which he was right about and he was drafting off of this kind of exploding building disaster movie thing seems to be popular. That what if I put my character in a setting like that? That and terrorism is like, yes. uh, you know, a hot plot in the 70s. Like, what if you had to deal with terrorists? And his book is explicitly terrorism. His book is not robbers pretending no, to be terrorists. Yeah. His book is, you imagine the protagonist of this film being a, a Frank Sinatra type, much more of a kind of hard-boiled angry, you know, sad, uh, noir-type cop in a straight-up, he's-got-to-shoot-down-terrorist setting. Um, I tried reading the book. Yeah. It's a perfectly serviceable airport thriller. Sure. I did not realize how much of what I like about this movie is not in the book at all. Yeah, Outside of truly just one guy trying to fight the guys in the building. Um, and think about this, kids. That's how... What an... I, an innocent time it was yeah. in the 70s and the 80s where people were like, you know what they'll pay to see in a movie theater? A big building. Big building. This building is so Very tall. Very tall building. are never going to believe how floors. big our fucking building is. I guess like the 60s and the 70s, there was an explosion of architecture. That yeah, there's skyscrapers Probably everywhere. the invention yeah. of the skyscraper. So they're like, let's use that. That's a cheap effect. People it's also, are, that's the thing. People it's, are gawking at them. It's free art direction. You're like, suddenly yes. these <laughs> things have been built in our real world that look like movie sets. Why not yeah. build movies cool. around them? So, all right. So Fox gets the rights. They made the detective. Supposedly, Sinatra was at least given the courtesy phone call of like, hey, do you want to do this movie? Yeah. He says, I am old and I do not want to do this movie. Well, there are two stages of, I mean, there's like. There's, there's a 70s call and then right. there is the nominal contractual yes. 1987 call of like, hey, 70 year old Frank Sinatra, you want to do Die Hard? And he's like, no. The first um, time I think he says, I'm I'm too old and I'm too rich. But it speaks to like. This guy drafts on the trend of Towering Inferno, writes the quick cash-in sequel, sells it immediately. They go to Sinatra. Sinatra's like, no, thank you. Movie's just dead. And now you're just like, there's this right. They own this thing. It's just a pile. It's in the pile on the desk. It's low priority. Um, Lawrence Gordon, uh, producer of this film, along Mm -hmm. with... uh, Predator. um, Was the the executive on Predator, sorry. Yeah. Josh, uh, you know, works at Fox. He revives this project in 87. He brings in Jeb Stewart, who is like a guy who had a development deal. Do you know Jeb Stewart at all? I don't don't really know what Jeb Stewart ended up amounting, like what, what else he did. That movie, I believe Leviathan. you put an exclamation mark after his name. He was like, Jeb! <laughs> Jeb! Jeb! Oh, uh, well, he wrote The Fugitive. Okay. Oh, yes. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, with David oh. Toey. He wrote some, you know, that's, he wrote a lot of action movies. 
That's pretty wonderful. It, it feels like, or it looks like, and, and having been in the business for a while, I guess I know it is like, you know, if you do something well and it makes money, they're like, Hey, that's the person. And that person they yes. go to until the thing doesn't do well, or until there's a new flavor of the month. And then they go to that person over and over again. David Kep seems to have had a really good run of that. Really yeah. good. David yeah. Kep seems to be like the go-to guy. Yeah, you know, I think for, he's uh, for... he's reliable, right? And he, you know, whatever. Um, but you basically have this this thing they own the rights to sitting on a desk for like a decade, right? And then Lawrence Gordon is going like, "We have open slots in our schedule." Yeah, here's the book. Right, it's it's truly a thing of like we need to plug in uh, this type of movie in this season, this type of movie in this season. What do we have? It's it's often you know now it's things are so like big IP based. Yeah. But these studios just look and they're like, what have we already spent some amount of money on so, so we can make back the investment of whatever the original rights buy was? So Stuart is struggling to write, you know, to adapt this book. Do a pretty straight he's, adaptation. He's got two two kids. Yeah. He says at one one day he was like driving to the studio to write, working all night, coming back stressed out. He got in a huge fight with his wife. He gets in the car He's driving from Pasadena back to Burbank. He almost crashes into what he calls a refrigerator box, like a giant cardboard box on the road, right? Mm -hmm. Pulls over to the side of the freeway, his heart is pounding, and he's like, that would have been it. Like, my wife would have never heard from me again. We ended on a fight. And he's like, that's what the movie's got to be. It's got to be someone my age yeah. who just got in a fight with his wife, basically, and then this shit happens before he gets to apologize to her. I mean, it's it's an even better thing that he latches onto there. I mean, the aha moment is so incredible and is like the first spark of like something great in this idea because none of that is in the book. Um, uh, yeah. But it's yeah. like, well, not just that's what the emotional setup of the movie is, but I can reverse engineer from this who the character should be, which is this is a guy who gets on a plane and flies to L.A., all that way just to apologize and then in the moment his ego gets in the way and he can't do it and he fucks up with the one thing he was trying to do and then finds himself in the middle of an action movie and the whole I thing is it. like how do i survive this to get to the other end of this and not right. have this be the greatest regret and now think about it that's be that's become a trope it's, yeah, it's the, time, the most obvious trope in the world now right yeah but but at the time it was novel we were all like oh Oh, there's a, the, yeah, they're Paul having a fight. Like it, it starts as like this domestic drama. Yeah, in the midst of which a terrorist incident explodes that doesn't turn out to be a terrorist incident at all. It's a movie that keeps turning every few minutes, where you're like, oh, I know where this is going. Wait, I don't know where this is going. Nah, now I know. No, wait, I don't know. Well, and you talking about how this is a movie that's not only still studied by film dorks like ourselves, but also by like kitchen sink people. There's the third column, which is. This is still a movie that executives try to replicate. And certainly yeah. for the 10 years after this, it was like the movie that everyone was trying to replicate. But people go like, how do you make a John McClane style hero, right. a Hans Gruber style villain? And how do you set the right emotional stakes in a movie like that? And the thing that Jeb Stewart talks about is that like he was like hot shot out of film school, shoots out to Hollywood, gets these development deals. And then it's like three years later, he's sort of just been stuck in the hamster wheel. And he keeps getting jobs that don't follow through. Nothing's getting made. Nothing's getting finished. He's somehow like successful and in debt. And now he's married and has kids and he's feeling all this pressure. And it's like the frustration that leads to his fight with his wife on that night is in the midst of him trying to crack this script off a of sort of like whatever paperback thriller. 
that then like explodes into this emotional regret, which he then feeds back into the script. Like the pressure of him knowing he needs to make this movie work creates the stakes that gives him the stakes of the story in a way that I think is kind of beautiful. The shooter is Jan Debont, right? Sure yeah. is. Yeah. How interesting that the best of the diehard, uh, let's not call them knockoffs, but yeah. uh, the children of diehard. Yeah, diehard on a bus. Speed yeah. Yeah. was directed by the guy that shot diehard. That's how obsessed the studios were with this movie that they were like, get us anyone who was on set and understands what the recipe was that made <laughs> that movie work. Um, okay, so look. Jeb Stewart turns into the the script, gets a green light. Joel Silver comes aboard, sits him down and says, nothing personal, but you're going to get fired. You are fired. This has nothing to do with the script. I love the script, but I don't know you. I got to make a movie and I got to make a movie fast. So this is how it's going to be. Right, because it's an immediate fast track of like he hands in his draft with this emotional backbone and they go like, this movie has a release date eight months from now. My favorite. You have a green light. You have no director. You have no star. My, it's going. My favorite thing is that Joel Silver's like, your script's pretty good, by the way, but why doesn't the building blow up at the end? And yes. Jeb Stewart's like, well, I, I don't know. I mean, like, if it blows up, didn't John McClane fail? Like, isn't that a problem? And Joel Silver's like, I don't give a fuck if he failed. <laughs> no one cares. You don't spend money to come to the theater and not see a building blow up. And Jeb Stewart's like, he is right. Like, that is, he is. what he brought to the table. He was like, yeah. no, no, no. The movie's got to have explosions in it. Yeah. Like, was actually a good note. So Jeb Stewart is still working on rewrites with Silver. They're trying to get a director attached. I mean, this is like, right, moving train because they have this summer slot where they want something like this. Uh, the first guy they offer the movie to is Verhoeven. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of hot makes sense. RoboCop. Yeah. You, yeah, yeah, you're coming off of RoboCop. Yeah, that makes sense. And Jan DeBont had shot so much of his Dutch work that yeah. it's like that's kind of the mood they want to bring to this. Um, mm. And yeah, McTiernan says he was just wasn't the first choice. We know Verhoeven was the first choice. I don't know if they offered it to everyone else. Yeah. But obviously Silver likes... McTiernan and Fox does and Gordon sure. does. He's proven himself. But McTiernan keeps reading the script and sends it back saying, "This is not fun. I don't want to see a cop shoot terrorists. I don't want to spend a year of my life immersed in a story like that." Like I think McTiernan's thing that, which is what transforms the movie, it's what you're talking about, Kevin. Is he's just like terrorists are not entertaining. Robbers are entertaining. Can we make them robbers? Can we make this movie fun? Like, can yeah. we have humor here? And can we have like? an ensemble of characters that are interesting rather than just like he just fucking wastes terrorists like on floor after floor. The commentary, the word he kept on using was joy. Like in all these meetings, I was like, there has to be joy in this movie or else it's a bummer. And he very wisely pinned like terrorists bum people yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah. Right? They yeah. just bad vibes. They make you think too much about like the larger political machinations of our bad world. And if the solution to them is a rogue hero going in and shooting them all, even if that's maybe like a net positive, it's not fun to watch. It's like haunted. Um, right. and, and he like makes this whole spiel to Joel Silver, who's so antagonistic. And he's like, Silver, to his credit, was like, you're 100% correct on this. I'm not fighting you on this at all. Make them robbers. They come up with the hook of they're robbers trying to present their terrorists. Right. Um, and then, yeah, he sees the sort of kernel of who McLean is in that, um, limo, uh, exchange, but then goes like, we need to bring a guy in to do a pass and bring that to the forefront. 
that's Stephen D'Souza. That's when that's D'Souza the, comes. The humor. Right. So who brings D'Souza? Is it Joel Silver? It's McTiernan. Or McTiernan? And, but the two of them, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And D'Souza had written on Predator. Yeah. And I mean, McTiernan just says that he is funny and has an ironic sense. Like, basically, that's who they want. Uh, you know, D'Souza says he also just was being brought into, like, kind of, like, they had walked, they walked through the building, through the sets, uh, and figured out just how the geography of set pieces would work. Like, you know, yep. what, where can he fight who, when, basically. Because uh, the so original he did, draft like, didn't this, have this that. Uh, on location specific right. stuff once they knew like where Nakatomi Plaza right. Was well, because right. Nakatomi Plaza is the one of the Fox buildings, so they know they have this building at their like uh, a, a, this free resource basically. Um, but yeah, all of this is like evolving very organically and very quickly. Of we're writing to circumstances now. We're writing to our understanding of the layout of the building. And we're writing to the taste of the director. Like, yes. think about how old school this entire project came together. There right. was a book. The book was bought by a studio. Sat for a while. Then it was assigned to a writer. Somebody read that script. Like, hey, we might have something here. Let's give it to another writer. Yeah. And then they put it in, or before that, in the hands of the director. The director had very specific ideas about why he didn't want to direct it, which then shaped the movie he would eventually agree to and then further shaped by his tastes essentially we're living in a culture of cinema culture that was deeply informed by john mctiernan going like i think it should be this yeah like he made right. the movie the action movie that he wanted to see that he found interesting that he found like, oh, let's put joy in it. Like, there's something you don't see in these fucking movies. Did, let's put irony in it. Did it feel that way when you saw, like, do you have a memory of that? Like, of you being like, damn, this movie's like fun. Like, you know. 100%. 100%. I remember going into that theater, and I convinced friends to come with me. Right. Um, it was, you know, it came out right around the summer. At that point, mostly everybody wanted to go to Snake Lake and drink and stuff. And I was like, no, man, this movie's <laughs> supposed Lake. to be good. Yeah. Die Hard. And they're like, I don't want to go to the Sears movie. Everyone called it the Sears movie because the only reference to a term Die Hard prior to that movie was Sears had their battery. Their yes. car battery was called the Die Hard, which I believe is where they stole the title from. It was not a popular term. You no, know, like it no. used throughout the culture. Die Hard was a Sears car battery. So the first right. time people start hearing there's a movie called Die Hard, they were like, what has Sears got to do with it? So I had to convince friends who was it? Shannon Fury came with me. <laughs> Ernie O'Donnell came with me. Ernie O'Donnell, who now runs that yeah. movie theater, he came with me. And we sat in the back of the theater. And I was able to get Ernie to come with me because he also loved Bruno. We listened to the, the, the Return of Bruno album. That's where I learned to drive in Ernie's car. So we went in for Willis. Yeah. And Willis delivered. And he was, you know, he wasn't David Addison. Right. Um, he yeah. was definitely more, more hardened, uh, didn't, he was quippy, but not nearly as quippy as David Addison. He wasn't a wise guy. He wasn't the class clown. Um, and so, but he delivered and what he delivered in terms of like raw cinematic charisma, suddenly you were like, wow, he can be more than David Addison. This is even cooler. But there was like this moment of back and forth. Like, who is that guy? The moment Hans Gruber starts fucking acting yeah the moment alan rickman comes into the picture um who moves like alan was a big fan of movement you know he, he bruce was the one that at least said to me um it's a movie we got to move but alan as a performer 
Like, if you look at his entry into Die Hard, mm-hmm. sweeping, low angle, and just commanding presence as he moves very, he doesn't walk normally. He walks in this assured, brisk pace. I mean, it's a thing that kind the of like, Harry Potter movies get mileage out of eight times in a row. thousand percent. The right. first time you see him enter a room in a yeah. Harry Potter movie, it's all about Alan's entrance. They and basically like how, get a gag out of his entrance in each film. Yes. Yeah. Yes. 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 And it was established probably here. Yeah. But he was the one that like all the gallows humor. Um, yes, the fact that he did kill Mr. Takagi, which then made him a threat enough to not want to root for the irony, the like, you know, come out to the coast, we'll have a few laughs. Um, all of this made made me as an audience member, and I know the people I went with, feel like that's the way it would be. Like, that's, that's how I would react. Right. Like, you never felt that going to action movies prior to that. Right. You're looking at somebody like Arnold Schwarzenegger or Sylvester Stallone, and you don't put yourself in their shoes. Die Hard, quite like Batman, as opposed to Superman, Aquaman, Wonder Woman, you have a hero where yeah. you're like, I could see myself. Like, this is a victim of circumstance, this guy. And, like, he's doing his best. And, like, he's a... A, a, a monkey in the wrench, if you will. Like he's identifiable in the way that most cinematic heroes weren't. They were too far removed. This guy, you could be this guy. David. Yes. John McClane likes to die hard. Okay. Does he like to die hard or does, is it hard for him to die? That's actually a he's great too question. good at living. Yeah. That's sort of his issue, right? That's true. His Achilles heel is he is too good at staying alive. Okay. Killing him is hard. I feel like you should arrive at a point. You know what is hard, though? Making several meals a day. That's true. I mean, yes, it's very hard. Eat hard is what? Food hard is my life story. It's hard feed to feed hard. It's hard to feed yourself, you know, and, and think of good things to cook and all this stuff. Factor. Yeah. Our new friends, Factor. Our new friends, have Factor. Delicious, ready to eat meals which make eating better every day easy because these are pre-prepared, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. Not all of us have a Daddy David at home making pasta three times a day. So I do make a lot of pasta. You do? Uh, look, no, because you'd have over 35 different options a week to choose from, including keto, calorie smart, vegan, veggie, and more. And there's lots of add-ons, Griff. What? Five fifty-five new over fifty-five nutrition-packed add-ons that make your weekly meal planning even more delicious. So what are you waiting for, Griffin? It gets hard today. They they have two-minute meals. They have two-minute meals. That's yes. shorter restaurant than most of our ad meals. reads. <laughs> All of them. You fill up fast with Factors restaurant quality meals, as you said. They're ready to heat and eat whenever you are. They got snacks, smoothies, and more. I don't know what you're talking about, by the way. All our ads are sixty minutes, sixty minutes, sixty seconds long. Jeez. Some of our listeners think they're sixty minutes long. Um. Yes, they got snacks. They got smoothies. They um, are less expensive than takeout. Every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. And they're flexible for your schedule. You get as much or as little as you need by choosing six to eighteen meals per week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. No prep. No mess. Meals. Factor meals are one hundred percent ready to heat and eat so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. I like the sound of that. Yes. So head to factormeals.com/check50. And use code CHECK50 to get 50% off. That's code CHECK50 at factormeals.com slash CHECK50 to get 50% off. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Clint Eastwood was the first choice. 
didn't get the humor. Makes a ton of sense. I mean, you look at this being a corrective, what you're saying, this feeling very different at the time it comes out. This movie is sort of like functioning as a response to the rise of Schwarzenegger and Stallone getting huge and becoming Let's have more a more, more superhuman hero. Yeah. Right. And I think they're in design trying to roll it back to Dirty Harry, and they end up stripping it even further beyond that. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was the thing. They said they offered this to fucking every guy in Hollywood. Right. But Clint Eastwood, Paul Newman, mm-hmm. and then Richard Gere right. are the most interesting ones that they could talk to about the most. And Gere, they're like, that's what we were thinking about. Like, a suave, sophisticated guy. Like, not a muscle-bound guy. Like, a guy who wears a jacket, right? Right. Like a, and then, like, when they get Willis, that is, I do feel like, right, more like, okay, well, this is earthier. Like, this guy's not... Because I wouldn't buy that with Gear. Suave, Gear right. does have... He's American Gigolo. You know, it's different yeah. than David Addison, who does have a chip on his shoulder. You know, David Addison is this... I, I think... He, you would have gotten humor from Gear, yeah, not yeah. nearly as much. No. I think he would have been way more interested in being who he was at that point, which was Richard Gear. It would have been yes. a Richard Gear vehicle. He whereas- had a defined movie star persona, whereas Bruce yeah. had something to prove, and and also Bruce is like emotion first. I mean, they finally uh, uh, Moonlighting has just gone up on Hulu recently, yeah, after being out of circulation for an incredibly long time because of music rights. And now they finally sorted all of that out. It was like one of the later shows to get released on DVD once that was the craze. And then has been one of the last major shows to get on streaming. And I had never really watched it before. And it is insane just tuning in the first episode and being like, this guy is fully, like, he's arriving fully made, fully developed. I cannot take my eyes off of this fucking guy. But relative to what he becomes as a movie star, there is... He has more vulnerability as David Addison than even the the Bill Murray archetype, right? Where people yes. call Bill Murray out in his bullshit, but he remains a little undeterred. There's that weird balance of these guys having the smartest dude in the room energy and running circles around people and some of the other characters being like, is he just like a fucking flimflam artist? David Addison shows the cracks at times, right? Yeah. And he shows his vulnerability and he gets afraid and he wants to win over Sybil Shepard and everything. Um, John McClane's a guy who's trying very hard to not show any of that. I mean, Ben and I saw this movie in theaters about a month ago, and not to reduce it to, like, dumb meme speak, but it finally cracked for me what this movie is about, and now I know the Jeb Stewart backstory of the the almost car crash, but I was like, oh, Die Hard is men will literally do a Die Hard to avoid going to therapy. It is a movie about men avoiding conversations, Right. And you can track that on to McLean, Powell, and Gruber, where Gruber is like creating this entire false narrative of who he wants everyone to think he is. This McTiernan thing of like all of the terrorists should look like European male models. They should look like Armani models. They should be more like Richard Gere types, right? And McLean is a guy who like gets on a plane to have a conversation and then refuses to have the healthy version of that conversation. And Powell is like, only able to process his trauma by talking to a stranger over a walkie-talkie. Right. They both are, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they're not in the room together. They can confess, like, feelings to each other. Right. It's true. And versus yeah. Powell, this- is Powell in the book or a version of Powell in the book? That's a great question. I I, I think, like... All these that feels char- like a movie invention. Yeah. He I feels mean, definitely... No, like he a, exists. There is something of a trope to that character, yes. but not this... 
clearly establishes that trope. But like when it when I was watching the movie, it was not unfamiliar. I was not like, this is the first time I've ever seen something like this, where there's a guy up there and there's a guy in there and they're communicating. Yeah. Like, but they really played the poignancy of that, as we know, like particularly at the end where they give Pal his own moment well, yeah. to, to clear his deck after he gives his confessional mid-movie where you're like, you know, these cops are not afraid to be vulnerable with one another. And so you get to see who they really are. And that your, your observation about Bruce in, in moonlighting, mm -hmm. his vulnerable David Addison yeah. is exactly on point. He is hysterical in that show and he is the comedic second banana of that show. Right. Um, but when they allow David Addison, these moments, like, you know, there was an episode where his father's played by Paul Servino. Mm -hmm. Um, and comes to the to to town, um, and it's involving a storyline where his dad's about to marry a woman that David feels that he had a one night stand with, you know, years and years ago. Really emotional storyline, but they were able to take that and just make him. I mean, for lack of a better term, John, uh, but John McClane is way more macho, as we used to say in yeah. the seventies than david addison but all yeah. of david addison is there it's maybe dated david addison 10 15 years later hardened to a large degree. yeah and also i mean it's just it's the thing that made bruce so fucking effective as a movie star is just like there is an innate kind of sad weariness to him there is this like heavy souled quality to him that cannot be completely covered up and when he puts the charm and the riz and the humor on top of that, you get this sort of full meal, but there's always this feeling of like, there's something kind of broken inside this guy. There's a longing, there's a thing he's struggling to express. I mean, yeah, Eastwood says, I don't get the humor, right? right? Paul Newman says, I don't want to shoot guns in movies anymore. I'm sick of carrying a gun in a movie, right. sure. Then there's yeah. a list of guys that's debated over yeah, who, who the studio right. wanted, who casting wanted, who The point is wanted. no one wants to be in it. That's Here's the, the one guy they sort of dance with a little bit, but it doesn't happen. And it gets to the point where it's like, this movie is a go picture. It, right. is, it is moving. It has been staffed up. They need somebody. Bruce Willis is in this very fascinating transitional stage where moonlighting is still on the air. It's big. Everyone is having this feeling of this might be a guy who could make the jump from TV to movies. We rarely give people that shot. He has shot two films, both Blake Edwards movies. Only Blind Date has come out, which did okay. Yeah. And I think everyone's take on that is like, that's a neutral. He didn't bomb. He didn't embarrass himself. But it's not like he proved himself as a movie star. Sunset is the next one, which is really expensive That's and is a bomb. shaping up poorly. Yeah. Yeah. But at this moment, they cast him has not has been released yet. So they're looking at it. I don't know if you have a blind date take, Kevin. I don't know if you saw Blind Date back in the day. Um, him and Kim Bassinger. Yeah. Um, I remember the song. Uh, there was a song about a guy's the, the Billy Vera and the Beaters, right? What would you think? You not nailed that it. Song, let yeah. let you song. get away. Oh, what a night! Uh, anybody seen her? They had a lot of songs in this. Soundtrack. I think it's any, oh. anyone. Anybody seen her? It's like the red dress. Oh, but I remember that that movie. I did. I saw it in theater. I was a huge uh, Blake Edwards guy. Still yeah. am to this day. So Sob is one of my favorite fucking movies. Um, wow. So I, I did see it when it came out. Yeah, and it, I'm not saying like it was lesser Edwards, but like you know it wasn't. It, it wasn't it wasn't sob but very few things are. remind me his agent's name david it's in the dossier his uh bruce, uh, bruce willis's agent arnold rifkin basically says oh, look 
Arnold Rifkin became the his producer, and yeah. they made movies together for the next like twenty years. He's like, no one wants to be in this fucking movie, so you're giving me five million dollars for Willis, which is basically the highest salary for an actor like Bruce Willis. It's, it's one of the highest reported salaries an actor had ever gotten at that point. Right, and his thinking was basically like, the first movie is a freebie, right? If they're testing you out as a movie star. If it doesn't hit, people go, well, transitional trying out. The second one can actually doom you. If you have two in a row that don't connect, you're fucked. They could feel that the second one wasn't going to connect. And he's like, we have them a little bit over a barrel because they can't get anyone for this. Yeah. Bruce has some marquee appeal, but he's untested as a movie star, and people don't know exactly where to slot him in as a movie star. The one thing we can do as an insurance policy is get him the quote-unquote record highest salary even yeah. if it's a record that is Even broken. Even if it's for a second. That's right. what he truly yeah. says. Like, they'll, they'll up, someone else will beat the deal the next week. But for that one day, that way, if the movie bombs, they'll go, well, he did it for the money. Right. <laughs> it exactly. wasn't like, you know, warmed over returns. At least Bruce made like a healthy, a tidy profit on it. You go back to TV, you do a second show, whatever the fuck it is. It's kind of defensible where you're like, you wouldn't have done that? Five exactly. million bucks? Come on. Right. Industry is furious because now they're like, fuck, what am I supposed to do? Give Tom Selleck $6 million for three men and a baby? Like, you know, like, like, have you set some benchmark? It's just like what happened with Jim Carrey getting 20. When I was going to say, yeah. there's 10 years difference between the escalation is so it does wild. Escalate. Yeah. From like five is seen as insane at that point, and 10 years later, it's 20. Yeah. It's multiplied four times. You know, Schwarzenegger gets 15 for Last Action Hero. Because, but, because they get Bruce. Yeah. They have to build out these supporting casts because of his fucking schedule. It's another fucking blessing in disguise. We're much like Back to the Future. They're like, we got this guy half the time. At a certain point in production, Moonlight will have wrapped for the season. But at least for the first chunk, we're going to be sharing him. They have him in the mornings and the days. Uh, So we got to build the supporting cast out. Which leads into McTiernan's insane read, which I had never heard before. That his take on this movie was, you got to structure this and build it like Midsummer's Night Dream. Um, Alan Rickman had that's done... That's the reference? Yes. Because he's like this classics guy. You know, like McTiernan studied drama at Juilliard. Right. Yeah, he is a Juilliard guy. Yeah. And he said, look, I'm not like hitting it beat for beat. I'm not trying to actually literally map on, you know, Die Hard to Midsummer's Night Dream. Right. But he said, it's this idea of this one night where everything goes crazy. And you establish this ensemble cast, and then this guy's going to turn into a donkey, and this person's going to fall under a spell, and this and that. And at the end, you reset things back to normal. And it's like, how do you set up as many colorful characters in this sort of contained setting and then test them all and let their personalities all explode? Um, Rickman had been on Broadway in Liaison Dangereuse um, as Valmont, Mm. and they liked him in that they have him audition. Rickman apparently is like, I'm not doing this. What is this shit? Yeah. And his agents are like, you've been in LA for two days and you got offered this job. Like, you do not turn this down. You are doing this. And Rickman is like, obviously it changed my life. Like, you know, it immediately changed his life. I mean, you worked with him. He's His rep is very menschy. I mean, I you know, obviously, you know, he's not with us anymore. And I do feel like everyone misses him so much. But like, what was, what was, what was Rickman like? Um, he did not disappoint. Um, you know, when I first saw him in the, uh, in, in Die Hard and fell in love with him as an actor, um, you know, I was, oh my Lord, I want to see everything this guy does after this. And, and I absolutely did, but never once, you know, cause this was years before I 
even thought about being a filmmaker. Never once was like, one day I'm going to work with that guy. Yeah. Even when I started my career, I was not like, one day I want to work. If they get me to Alan Rickman, I don't make movies like that. But then we had, you know, dogma. And so I, I guess this is the story. And I just went over it recently with John Gordon, who was my exec at Miramax back in the day. And he went on to produce like David O. Russell's movies and stuff like that. And he ran Annapurna for a while. He ran like Universal for a minute. But John Gordon, he didn't, he didn't remember this when I told him the story. And then he was like, oh my God, you're right. And I said, this shows you what a life you've led that you don't remember this story. <laughs> so he calls me up and he goes, dude, we just had a meeting with Alan Rickman. And I was like, Hans Gruber? And he's like, yeah, man. Like, we met with him about this Merchant Ivory project. I was like, how was he? Was he cool? They're like, he was very cool. He's going, but I have to tell you, all he wanted to talk about was chasing Amy. And I was like, what? That's why He was like, yeah. yeah. He was like, we were pitching him this Merchant Ivory thing. And he said, it sounds interesting, but who made Chasing Amy? I would like to know what they're doing next. And they were like, oh, that's Kevin. He's making this movie Dogma. So John Gordon, when he called me and told me that, I was like, I was, you know, I was like, oh my God, the guy from fucking Die Hard knows who I am. <laughs> I was excited alone for that. But John was like, what about him for Metatron? I was like, oh God, yes. I was like, yeah, fucking let's send him a script. So we sent him the script for Dogma and he responded like immediately right. a day after he got it. He was like, I, I'm not going to try to do the accent, yeah. but he was like, I absolutely adore this. Do you have a God yet? And I was like, somebody to play God. I had written that role for Holly Hunter, who was oh, wordless wow. in piano. Yeah, and that's yeah, yeah. why there's like piano jokes and references. But Holly Hunter had done A Life Less Ordinary right. uh, with Danny Boyle, a movie we, about killer angels. He covered that like, recently on, on the podcast. Nope. A very nope. bizarre film and performance. Very yeah. bizarre film. And she, because of that, she was yeah. like, I don't want to do another movie with angels and stuff. So Alan Rickman is like, do you have a God? And I was like, no, right now we're godless. And he was just <laughs> like, well... Uh, I would like to ask my friend, I think she would find this hysterical, uh, Emma Thompson. Sure. And I was like, yeah, yeah, go, go ahead. Yeah, 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 ask yeah, you want to give her a call? Yeah. So for about two months, Emma Thompson was God. And wow. she, the, so Alan good. gave her the yeah. script and they were besties and shit. Right. He was like, you should come out and do this. I'm going to play the Metatron. You turn out to be God. That'd be yeah. great. And then I got this beautiful handwritten letter from Emma Thompson. Like saying that, like, you know, I, I was really looking forward to this, but I'm, I'm actually not, I'm going to have to uh, drop out um, I, as much as I love Alan and the script. Uh, and, and she was like, I'm thinking about um, having a, a kid. Sure. So, you know, I'm, I want to concentrate on that at the moment. Thank you so much. Hope we work together in the future, blah, blah, blah. So I was like completely, you know, um, un, unsavvy in these days in terms of like uh, the press in mm -hmm. terms of like i'd say a thing and not think that like oh that's going to be newsworthy to somebody else so hardly circumspect i had a big fucking mouth <laughs> so i was doing an interview and i was like oh emma thompson was going to play god but she wants to stay back in england and try to have a kid so and then we got a phone call yeah <laughs> from emma thompson's agent who was very very sweet but communicated the message of like can you please not tell people that I'm thinking about trying to <laughs> right, because was... I opened my I opened my door this morning. And the entire British press was sitting in front of it with cameras asking right. me about this question. And it's not like, like a oh variety God, scoop of like Emma Thompson circling motherhood as potential <laughs> right, next project. Right. Um, so he was. You want to talk about a mensch? Yeah. He not only did he join the movie, but he was like, oh, let me bring along legend Emma Thompson with me. So even though she dropped out, he 
loved the movie and was with us every step of the way. He, I, one of my favorite moments on the set of Dogma was we were between shots and we're at the church and I looked over and Alan Rickman was sitting next to Jason Mewes and they were deep in conversation. <laughs> and I remember thinking, what the fuck could these two have to say to each other? <laughs> like what common ground? But Rickman like absolutely loved Muse. He's like, yeah. he's a true, he was the one that used the phrase that I continue to use to this day. Alan said about Jason, he goes, he is a true American original. Yeah. And he was oddly fascinated by him and stuff. So he loved hanging out with him. He loved the shoot. We threw out Alan's back while we were making Dogma because we put these wings on yeah, him yeah. with a big harness and levers in another room. And we kept opening and closing them. And it literally threw his back out, like to the point where he couldn't move. So there's a scene in Dogma. We couldn't change our schedule where they all meet in this restaurant. And he joins them and he slides into his seat in a very Alan Rickman sort of way. <laughs> yeah, right. But it was only because he could not fucking move. His back was so bad. So he slides he was physically in being and, slid. Yeah. It, no, he was sliding himself, but he was in physical agony yeah. in doing it because he couldn't move a quarter inch in any direction lest he be like, <clears throat> and periodically through the take, there were those moments you could just cut out and stuff. But his entry, he slides into chairs like going in style. And as soon as he finishes the line, somebody else starts talking in the raw footage. Alan goes, you would imagine he would have been like, I fucking hate Kevin Smith and all his friends. Right. But he maintained a friendship with us for, for years for me, Scott, Jason, uh, my wife, Jen, like whenever he would come to the States, he would find me. He would either phone me or he would send me an email and stuff. Uh, and whenever I went to England, the same thing. Oh, like yeah. when I went to England, he would find me and be like, we're taking you out to dinner. Him and Rima, his wife. Yeah. And then when he was in the States, he'd be like, you owe me dinner. And we'd take <laughs> yeah, him out. So he, like, I remember one time I went to do a show at the O2 in London, like one evening with Kevin Smith type thing. Mm -hmm. And he was like, can I go? And I was like, oh my God, you want to? He said, yeah, I love going to your shows people know who I am in the audience. Right. And I was like, that's, that's so, that's adorable. <laughs> so they went to the show. I did the show. And then like, you know, it's outside of London. So we all jumped in like the car service to go back together. I think that, I don't know if they'd taken the train or something to get there. So, but at that time of night, trains don't really go back. We were more than happy to go back with him and Rima. So um, he told me this adorable story and, you know, he was talking about the show and how people come up to him and stuff and talk about the talk, die hard, talk about Metatron, blah, blah, blah. Talk about, you know, the sheriff of Nottingham, yeah. you know, cancel Christmas. Shit cancel like that. Christmas. So we're, we're driving back and I was like, so how are you doing? He goes, well, I finally uh, broke down and bought an apartment in New York. He'd been doing a lot of shows. He was yeah. directing the play. Um, I am Rachel Corey. Mm -hmm. He had been in, um, what was it? Past lives, previous lives or something. I forget. Uh, what it was. I he went was to in the Stomperd thing. Yeah. So he was and spent thing. a lot of time yeah. in New York. And so he was like, I finally bought an apartment. I was like, Oh my God, that's great, man. And he goes, well, not so great. I said, why? And he goes, well, I bought an apartment in the same building where my friend lives. And I was like, well, that, I would imagine that's really nice. And he goes, yes, but my friend is Ray Fiends. And I was like, I didn't, I didn't <laughs> know that you guys were friends. He was going, yes. And we're trying desperately to keep all of this secret. And I was like, why? And he's like, because if the Potter fans find out <laughs> that Snape, Snape and Voldemort live in the same building, they will bring it down, you know? So he was he was absolutely lovely and it took me years to understand that we were actually friends yeah you know because the first time i was exposed to this guy i was like he's an acting legend and i always viewed him as this movie star even when i got to work with him and, and found out he was a real human being and and related to him and, and would hang out with him and stuff and for years i thought he was just being like british 
courteous, you know, by being like, well, Kevin's in town, I'll reach out to him. But it it wasn't that. He just genuinely liked me this and Jay. This delivered. And and My Scott. God, he truly is the menchiest mensch I've ever heard of, basically. Yeah. Scott, yeah. still to this day, Scott talks about, he's like, one time he just took me out to lunch. And he's like, and I was sitting there for two hours in the middle of that lunch. I was like, I can't believe Hans Gruber right. is talking to me yeah. like I'm a real human being. Like, he was a guy. He could talk. He didn't just talk about movies. Right. He, didn't, he never really talked about the business. He would talk about the craft if he wanted to and stuff. But he was, he had such a great sense of humor, not a wicked sense of humor or something yeah, like yeah. that. He was just funny. And when you can make him laugh, you felt insanely powerful. There's some people in life where if you can crack him, you're like, oh man. And Alan's laugh was so rapturously joyous and silent. He was very like, <laughs> he is. Ha, ha, ha. So you only heard the exhale. He's such a fascinating figure to me because it's like, he's 41 when they filmed this movie is that right uh, it's, it's got to be like a grown-ass man he's a grown-ass he like man 46 so. yeah he's, he, 40. he's like 40 yeah, yeah, 41. Yeah, yeah 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 i mean there's that thing where you're just like you know it's not even i i, I re-watched uh uh, the Gambler, the James Conn movie uh, recently. And like James Woods is in it for a scene as a bank teller, right? Yeah. And you're like, oh, it's weird to see baby, like primordial, unformed James Woods. But the moment when James Woods fully comes into his power and has established what his movie pers persona is, there's been footage of James Woods floating around, you know, whether or not you've taken notice of this guy versus like, this is Alan Rickman enters on screen a fully formed adult person. And not only that, like someone with complete command of his craft, even though he's working in a different medium. It has this meta effect that I think helps the movie, even if you're watching it today. Obviously, like we're of an age where we watch it already familiar with Alan Rickman and other things. But there's something you have to imagine about like what you're saying. This guy just entering and being like, I got no read on this guy. This guy's inscrutable. I'm bringing no context from his previous performances, which is what this character demands is who the fuck is this guy? Who walks like this? Who talks like this? What is his plan? What is his political agenda? You know, um, but I feel like because this defines his thing so hard and then for the next 30 years of his career, he's doing variations on this. He's doing, you know, Sheriff of Nottingham is very much, can you play Hans Gruber in, uh, you know, in, in uh, Old England? Uh, or it's, can you play with the persona? Can you twist it? Can you this or that, you know? Galaxy Quest, I feel like, is mocking what the public perception of him was. Right. And when he passed, there's so many stories that came out, like the ones you were telling from people who worked with him, who were like the dearest man, the most considerate, right. quiet, thoughtful. And it was like he kind of didn't have a public persona for so long, as much as his work was so big and he was so known and people loved him. It felt like I, I feel like I as a fan was always worried, like, is he just kind of what he plays? Is he kind of haughty and aloof and sort of above it all? And then he plays it very well on screen, but I never hear people telling me that this dude's a mensch. And then when he died, not only was there such a constant outpouring, but then they published his diaries, which were so fucking good. Yeah, no, and they're are incredible. so like thoughtful and yeah. detailed. And he took these really detailed diaries while he was filming everything. And you're like looking into his process where I'm like, this is a guy who I just assumed he's 40. He shows up in his first movie. He's like, I know how to act. 
Just give me the script. Well, I learned the lines. He's, it's presets. He's a, he doesn't know how to hold a gun. He doesn't know how to be in an action movie. Like, yeah. he had to learn a lot, I think. Um, but they are like, now that we have Willis, who's sort of more working class, he makes an urbane villain now makes sense. Yeah. Like, rather than a muscle bound villain or whatever. Like, you know, this guy who's sort of like, intellectual and he's talking about you know suits and he's talking about you know like he's got this kind of like you know classical music villain vibe well right? it's all the the terrorism thing of like this guy the last thing he wants anyone to know is that he is a common robber right he right. is embarrassed by the notion that he only is in it for gold how embarrassing is that he wants to put on this show of this is this is from coming from a political ideology. I have a statement to make. I have a point to make. Um, but that helps that there's the sort of acting on top of acting in the character baked in. He um, uh, the uh, persona, the Hans Gruber persona, which, as you mentioned, a lot of people were like, hey, man, can you do that? Can you do a variation yeah. of that? Can you do a variation of that? We worked with him on Dogman. We weren't like, give us Hans Gruber. It was like more like, just give us that voice. Like yeah. you're meant to be the voice of God and you have that voice. So go ahead. And so he's like, you know, he's he's got some uh, br British irascibility, but he's very gentle, very well-spoken. And and like, he's got this beautiful scene with Linda Fiorentino that's just touching as hell where he has to explain to her that she's like the savior and stuff. Yeah. So naturally, of course, I wanted to work with him again and again and again. Only ever worked with him that one time. Right. He was meant to play the role of Will and Holly, which uh, Will Ferrell eventually got. Really? Jane Silent Bob Strike Back. Yeah. But That's a very different movie. Crazy. Yes. And here's why, though. It's predicated on something that happened. There was another time that we were working together, and then it didn't pan out. So we made the Clerks cartoon. Uh, if you've never oh, seen yes, it. Yes, yes, of course. Yes. Leonardo, Leonardo. There were only six episodes. Yeah. Leonardo, Leonardo is the villain of the show. And I made the show with, with uh, Dave Mandel, who made, was from Seinfeld, Veep, uh, White House Cleaners, Road, uh, was not Road Trip, but Euro Trip. Yes. You know, Scotty doesn't know. Um, so Dave, very funny guy. And so we created for clerks like a, a Monty Burns sort uh, called Leonardo Leonardo, um, the town that everything takes place in was Leonardo. And the first episode is him opening quicker stop, like across the street in this giant, like fucking mega mall. So the character looks exactly like Hans Gruber. He's drawn yeah. to look exactly like Hans Gruber because Alan was like, we were like, Alan, will you play our bad guy? And he was like, I would love to do animation. So uh, I'm not going to do the voice. Sorry. So um, he <laughs> signed on. We recorded like all the boys, Brian, Jeff, um, uh, Jay, um, but when it came to Leonardo, we had to wait till Alan was going to be, you know, in the States and then do it all at one time. So he came in and like, we were all so excited and me and Scott, of course, knew him, but like Dave, everyone on the, on the crew of the clerk's cartoon was like, Oh my God, it's him. It's him. And so Alan was like, uh, we showed him the designs and stuff and we we're like, so yeah, man, just take it away. And Alan goes, um, if you don't mind, I really don't want to do Hans Gruber. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I, I, I know, but like it's a cartoon. So it's kind of, you can get away with it. And he goes, no, I can't get away with it. He's going, I'd rather, if it's cartoon, I'd rather do something. Yeah. I'd rather be animated. Because it does look like, just like him and specifically like Gruber. Pitch perfect for yes. that reason. Yes. And so, you know, I'm like, okay, man, like I trust you, go for it. 
And Alan's performance of Leonardo Leonardo was a mimicry of Ross Perot, then presidential That's candidate, so one time failed presidential candidate. Had, Ross had, an, had an iconic we, voice. Yeah. Yeah. We he did. And and we have somewhere in the Disney uh, library, because Disney produced the show. In the vault. Um, in the vault somewhere is six episodes That's worth wild. of Alan doing Leonardo Leonardo, but sounded more like, hey, you boys, <laughs> you clerks, you well played clerks. Like it was crazy because you'd see this voice coming out of his mouth and you're like, I didn't know he could do that sort of thing. But it just didn't match like what we had the character doing. Yeah. And so we wound up um Dave Mandel, because he worked on Saturday Night Live, and because uh other stuff he worked on, he became uh friendly with um Alec Baldwin. And so Alec Baldwin came in and played Leonardo Leonardo instead. And he's basically doing his own Gruber impression. Which uh, we said. We were, yeah, he was like, what yeah, do you yeah. want? And we were like, can you just do Hans Gruber? And he was like, okay. <laughs> that was, so he went for it. And then years later, I was on like Match Game or whatever Alec Baldwin was hosting. And, uh, you know, backstage, the hosts usually come by and say hi and stuff. And he was like, uh, Kevin Smith, uh, lovely to meet you. And I was like, we met before. You were in, in the Clerks cartoon. He goes... That's right. He's going, boy, I feel Hollywood. <laughs> it must be nice to be able to forget gigs that you've done. <laughs> to have that in, many in my big world, gigs. every yeah. like clerks, mall rats, like mall rats yes. happened yesterday. And yeah. I keep these things alive and, and milk them to death. But the people I work with, other than Jason Muse, generally go on to other movies yeah, and yeah. we're a memory of one thing that they did, if a memory at all. And that dude's storied career, like yeah. he didn't. He didn't instantly remember. But when I said it, he said that he did. Um, JJ, who does our research for the podcast, yes. uh, put in a couple notes of editorialization, as he is prone to do in, in the research uh, document he gave us. And one of them is just, he called out, I think it's a fascinating recurring thread as we've been doing all these McTiernan movies, that McTiernan seems to be somewhat driven by his distaste for what other action movies were at the time. Right. We talk about this being a movie that everyone sort of copies that becomes the blueprint. And the commentaries I've been listening to that are recorded decades later, he talks about the ways in which he feels other movies, other filmmakers took the wrong lessons from what he did, miss the messaging of it. But there's that sort of feeling of like um, the, the, the obsession with infusing joy into this mm. thing. Mm -hmm. audiences don't go right, to right down right down to the ode to joy said, yeah. when they was open the fucking vault literal yes. for him he was yes. like that was sort yeah. of the mantra of the set it wasn't me being clever it was like i want that constantly being repeated over and over again um so there's the sort of like philosophy the tone the mood of what he thinks this movie needs to be in order for it to be enjoyable but there's the other thing of here's this guy who like went to afi who worked in commercials for a very long time and basically spent a decade plus studying film construction like a science, getting incredibly, incredibly technical about it. And he talks about how he was truly like he would write up charts with shot lengths just theoretically, like he was working on like a theorem of just like, would it work if a shot was this long and then you cut it this length and directionally one shot was this way and the other shot was this way? He spends a lot of time being incredibly analytical and clinical about it to 10 years later when he's on the set of Die Hard, almost all of this is unconscious for him. And you read about how much of this movie was vaguely improvisational, that when they start filming, the script is like 30% of what it ultimately ends up being. 
but they're pieces like, well, we have Argyle at the beginning picking him up. He's sort of the framework of the movie. The realization of, oh, Argyle needs to be the one who's perfectly placed to back up to stop the ambulance at the end of the movie happened mid-flow. And when Ben and I saw this uh, uh, at Nighthawk with several rounds of drinks uh, right before Christmas and people are like hooting and hollering in the theater, uh, the whole time I just kept on thinking to myself, like, it is frustrating how well organized this movie is. That was the term I kept on going back to of just like this movie is visually so well organized. It is narratively so well organized. It is like, it's like watching someone on the fucking Johnny Carson show do a plate spinning routine. And you're like, there's no way he's going to be able to make it over to that plate in time before it stops spinning. And you're just keeping track of all the plates in real time. Um, And as you said, a lot of it was like out of necessity of we need to make the other characters interesting enough that we have reasons to shoot them when yeah. we only have Bruce for half a day. Right. But re-watching it, I was, for how much this movie is a star vehicle, taken by how many long stretches of this film there are where it really feels ensemble where McLean yeah. is just one of the characters. I mean, think about it. You, In a world where they have more access to Bruce Willis, you probably don't get nearly as much Ellis. No. And Ellis, like, for a for a side incidental character is so memorable and so well drawn and performed. Yes. But like, you're like, Oh, when he goes, you're like, I mean, I get it for the story, but fuck, I like that guy. Like, but because you liked him, you were even more invested with like, Oh my God, they'll kill guys like that. Like tough that he goes off screen. Yeah. You don't even see it. Um. Yeah, that he, performance. He, obviously. Who is that? Dude? Is Hart Hart, Hart, Hart Bachner, Bachner. Is who later directed PCU in High School High? Your favorite. Yeah. Movie. Bizarrely, I believe yeah. his was his dad Lloyd Bachner. Correct. Yes. I'm not, I'm not calling him out as a nepo baby, but I think <laughs> I remember his dad from his like, dad was Lloyd the, Bachner. Yeah. Who was Big either TV on guy. Dynasty? Or, yes. I think Dynasty. He was on Dynasty. Yeah. He was yeah. on a million yeah. things. He. So he was a legacy. This kid. But oh my god, he was magic. I remember watching the movie in the theater and being like. This guy's great, man. McTiernan like apparently stuff. had said to him, like, you're Cary Grant. Like, play this like you're the, the classy guy. You're going to be the opposite of Willis. And Bachner was like, no, I want to be, like, on coke. Yeah. Like, I want to be, <laughs> right. like, coked up. And McTiernan's like, oh, God, no, I hate that idea. Don't do that. And Bachner just starts doing it, and Joel Silver just starts laughing and is like, let him do this. This is good. Like, this is going to work. Well, it sounds silly, but it's like right. this whole movie is being, you know, it's all driven by how do we make the building explode in a cool way, right? We're doing a thriller in a building. We're calling back to Irwin Allen. We're selling this poster that we have in our mind of the building exploding. And McTiernan keeps on going back to like, how do we make people care about the building? How do we make that fucking matter? Which is you need to care about the people in it. Doesn't mean you need to like everyone in it, but you need to be fascinated by everyone. And everyone is so vividly drawn. And the first like 20 minutes of this movie. Yeah. I guess it moves pretty fast. Maybe the first 15 I, I are would... really set up everything on the board and he is quietly, simultaneously both teaching you the geography of everything so invisibly, right? Like all these kind of sweeping camera movements going in and out of rooms where you're just starting to be able to piece together in your brain, okay, I get it. This room connects to this room. This floor yeah. is here. yeah. And That's also true. just very efficiently pinning every character in your mind where you're just like everyone has their thing. It doesn't feel kind of gimmicky, but you're just like everyone has a different look 
a thing that I think a lot of filmmakers overlook very often is just like Hans Gruber's gang has 10 vividly visually distinctive people in it. It's true. None of them are going to get to talk that much, but even the two Nordic Aryan guys have different vibes. The brothers have different vibes, you know? And, and, and picking Alexander Gudnov. Yeah. You know, who's known at this point, of course, mostly he's most famous as a dancer, but he starts breaking in into pictures. Had he done, He'd done Witness. Um, I feel like that's his He did Witness. Thing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Witness. What a wonderful movie. Witness that's right. That's fucking, his like, first time they use him as a blonde goddess. The, uh, the, uh, the of, best of a, movie of a, a Amish. Oh, yeah, I one still, of your favorites. That movie still said, the gun, this is the gun of the hand. Oh, I love that fucking flick. I, I love it. It's the best. We will do it on this podcast, obviously. Yeah. Why do you do think, Peter why do you think, like, oh, a side note, why do you think a Witness hasn't been remade yet that is a great question because it is the easiest thing in the world yeah um and if i'm some chris pratt level star right who kind of is like i need a vehicle like it's like me and like you know fucking remake witness or you don't even have to remake it but just do that yeah i'm a cop there's a kid i have to protect him i have to go to the amish or i have to go to some community like have you seen Witness? Yes, of course. Harrison yes. Ford is John Book. Yes, yes, of course, John Book. No, I do, but I do think he's it, hell. He's hell at whacking, man. <sighs> we're talking about like the the Willis career development, right? There was that kind of thinking that wasn't. I do think these things now often get reduced to like they need a franchise, right? If you're managing someone who feels like they're on the cusp of movie stardom or trying to maintain movie stardom, it's like give them a franchise that's going to keep the ball in the air that gives them a safety net in between projects to go back and make another sequel to this. And those things are usually IP-driven versus the sort of, like, character calculation of a John McClane, a movie that's on its face. This film does not feel like it should be able to spawn a franchise. It feels like this is a story this and a character... This is a thing that happened to this guy. ...are yeah. so circumstantial. Well, I mean, how do you well, feel they, about And then they the use franchise? that in the marketing of yes. two, where it's like, yeah. how can the how same thing happen to the same guy again. twice? Right. I mean, like, how do you feel about Die Hard as a franchise? Because, like, Vengeance is great. The others are kind of, you know, it's sort of up and down. And, like, it is weird that McLean keeps, you know, suffering at the hands of terrorists and evil villains. And the other weird thing we should acknowledge is all four... No, let me get this straight. uh, Die Hard's two through four all start as uh, independent scripts that are then retrofitted into this could be a good Die Hard sequel. Uh, a Good Day to Die Hard is the only one that was actually explicitly written as a Die Hard sequel. Right, 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 right. Um, and they go back and yeah. forth I, on I mean, which is weird. I love, yeah. I, I loved him returning. Uh, you know, I was eager for more McLean. So Die Hard 2 totally works for me and, and still, yeah. like, uh, works for me to a large degree. Um, you know, bringing back... Bill Latherton, you know, uh, putting him on the plane with her, you know, fun little callbacks like that. But they still managed to tell an original story that, like, you weren't like, oh, man, this is a gross fucking grab at my dollar again. It's like, no, I buy it. Bad thing happened to this guy twice. And it also felt like, oh, they're going in the Irwin Allen theme. So they did a building. Now they're doing an airplane. You know, if it, it would not have been out of the ordinary if Die Hard 3 had been about an earthquake or something right, like right, that. Right, right, right. But um, instead, of course, it went in a much more Pulp Fiction-y 
direction. That feels like Pulp Fiction informed what Die Hard 3 became right down to the repairing of, well, not pairing, but two of the stars yeah. of Pulp Fiction being in the movie together. But also, like, let's bring McTiernan back. Uh, yeah. Let's, I mean, we'll obviously cover this in its own episode. Yeah, who was, was, was two Rennie Harlan? That was Correct. Two is Harlan. Right? Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't have, I mean, I mean, I ain't take anything away from Rennie Harlan. Again, yeah. I, I love Die Hard too, but it doesn't have the exact mix element that the first one had. That very rarely does a sequel capture all the magic, but yeah, there's a, you can feel a lack of McTiernan in that movie, but not in a way where it's like, it's unwatchable. It's just, you can sense that, oh, this is in somebody else's hands. David. Yes. I got a problem. I got a big, 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 big issue. What's that? Well, when I'm looking for hand-selected, great cinema from around the world, I go to movie. I go to our friends at movie. I pull up movie. We love movie. That solves that problem for me. Yep. I got an unrelated issue that I don't think movie can solve. What's that? I don't know how to have sex. Okay, look, listen, look, listen. I'm looking and listening. Look, look. This episode is brought to you by Movie, of course. It is. And they are presenting the new film, How to Have Sex. Well, wait which, a second. Which won the Uncertain Regard Prize at the Cannes Film Festival, and it follows these three British teenage girls on a rite of passage holiday where they're drinking and clubbing and hooking up uh, in the streets of Malia, you know, in so, Greece. Feature debut from rising British filmmaker Molly Manning Walker, notably the cinematographer of Scrapper, one of your favorite movies of 2023. Uh, an, an excellent film. But I just will, I do want to warn you okay. that this is not really about how, like, the, the the sex being had is often actually, you know, quite, you know, sort of complex oh, okay. and problematic. And it's, you know, it's about difficult situations that evolve. Like, it's definitely not a manual or it's anything not a, like it's that. It's not an instruction manual. But, no. it's a, but it's a film that I would enjoy watching. It's a vibrant and authentic depiction of the agonies, ecstasies, and ride-or-die glory of young female friendship. It's a good movie. I've seen it. I mean, this uh, sounds like my kind of thing. Uh, yeah. BAFTA nominee for British Film of the Year. Uh, it was at Sundance. It was at Cannes. It's gotten incredible reviews, and it's playing in theaters, and it is a cool movie to see in theaters because it is very sensory. It is, you know, you are partying with these girls. Like, it's about this sort of crazy, sort of, like, overwhelming scene that they're in. So it's cool to be, you know, locked in a theater with it, obviously. Is Dr. Ruth still alive? believe dr ruth is still alive man yes. i'm definitely gonna watch this film it sounds right up my alley but i'm also just like i got maybe gotta tackle this other She's 95 on this so you want to okay. give her a call soon but yeah how to have sex is now playing only in theaters visit movie.com slash how to have sex one word to see showtimes and get tickets that's mubi.com slash how to have sex I'm going back to this, like, why doesn't someone remake witness question, right? Sure. Which I know sounds like a side tangent, but I do think it's connected to this where you're like, this speaks to, you know, Willis's agent at this moment being like, you're, you're, you're in the zone. You have the potential and careers, uh, being planned out with this sort of big picture understanding of like, what are your innate qualities as a movie star that we need to bring to the fore and frame properly? And also, like, what are the different aspects of your relationship with the audience that we need to nurture? What do people like seeing you do? And what are the things they haven't seen you do that we need to try? You know, so there was like a Willis persona, but it was also almost always in a vaguely romantic context. That was part of it. To start this movie with a guy who's fucking up. Right. Right. 
who is not charming the woman of the movie, who is starting the movie in the doghouse fucking up. And I also think it's such an interesting choice to start the movie with this guy basically trying to fight off a panic attack, right? Yeah, and, yeah. Make balls with your feet. And trying to cover for it. This other guy is initiating a conversation with him that he would not have. He seems uncomfortable that a stranger is talking to him. This guy is more at peace with himself. This guy has figured out his own demons to some degree. Hey, this is what you do with your feet when you're panicking. And McLean's kind of like, okay, thanks, buddy. And then yet, still, the first moment he's alone, he's like, let me try out the thing that stranger told me. But then it's so cruel. He needs to be shoeless. Like, that's why of they course. do it, right? And this is the shit where the first 15 minutes, you're like, every element of this movie is somehow setting up three elements at the same time. Right. Or at the very least, laying track, conveying information. I think about the the introduction of the digital sign-in screen, Right. Which is like, what are you accomplishing in this? First, I know, like, this seems ridiculous, like, you know, the, doing this business, yeah. Right, you're setting up a little bit of, like, this is how the Nakatomi Corporation works. This is very modern, this feels kind of hermetic, this is the sort of influence of Japanese culture onto our business that is, like, a rising sort of, like, consideration in the 80s. This guy, he's blue-collar, he doesn't know from fucking touch screens. he doesn't get this, but also right. at the same time, you have the emotional beat of he's looking for his wife's name in there. He can't find it. Oh, it's under Gennaro. No, it's the it's maiden huge. name. Right. He's learning it in a show don't tell way. And and then the, for it to then play into like Correct. that's why they don't know that they're related. And like, you know, it's brilliant. You're seeding that later. And you're just like, this is such a good movie. And I saw someone on our Reddit asking this recently because we'll throw this term out. But like movies that mm. teach you how to watch them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Okay. And I feel like mm. often that term is thrown out for movies that are like complicated, that have a sort of bracing or unconventional visual style or right. narrative structure or whatever. This is a movie that is on its face fairly straightforward, but is also incredibly complex of like, we're going to make an action movie with real emotional stakes and basically a Robert Altman-esque approach to tapestry of characters and subplots and different things you need to track happening simultaneously in real time. Like, this is like Nashville combined with an Irwin Allen movie, combined with a Dirty Harry movie. And there's just an efficiency to, you know, John McTiernan being 10 years on from, there was a point where I was academic and technical and scientific about it, and now it's in my bones. I don't storyboard it. I can show up on set and kind of work this out in real time. And I'm not looking to make myself look good. I'm looking to get this across as cleanly as possible and to keep everyone's attention. And yeah, you just have these 15 minutes of like, you're meeting Argyle, you're yep. meeting Ellis, uh, you're, you're meeting Holly, you're watching this guy fuck up immediately followed by, you know, feet and balls on, <laughs> on the carpet Mm -hmm. And then it's like gunshot at maybe minute 15. Maybe a little later. Than, it's a long movie. Yeah. It kind of defies a lot of the rules of these kinds of movies. Like, I feel like a lot of diehard clones, like, would, we're not allowed to be more than, like, 95 minutes long. Like, we're not allowed to have, like, expansive casts like this one does. 18 minutes is when they shoot the security guard. Sure. So right. that's when, like, shit starts to unravel. Right, but you already and by feel then, like, by you then know you've so established much. your world. All the players, you know, are pretty much uh, on the proscenium or have, have taken to the stage. And think about you guys mentioned the the feet thing. Yeah. You didn't have to set up the feet. He could no. have just been getting changed, and and like it's an incidental thing that they don't spend a lot of time 
on, it could have happened. He could have not had his feet, his shoes on when the, the attack happens. And whatnot. But how assiduously they deal with his feet to yes. like really thread the needle, like from the plane to the, you know, corporate offices where he's doing, uh, you know, what is it with his feet? Uh, ball, making balls with his yeah. feet, making fists with his toes. Yeah, I don't know why. And so, balls. you know, once again, you're close on balls. his feet, yeah. but it's not, doesn't feel like foreshadowing. It's like, oh, finishing a final thought from that plane thing. Uh, that's, that's cute. That's cool. That's human. And right. it's only later on that you start to realize, oh, it was all set up for the moment where he's like, shoot the glass. <sighs> like I remember being yes. in the theater when when you're sitting in the theater, and, and this happens at any age, but I was like 17 at the time, I believe, where you're like, oh, that's he he's gonna shoot the glass because his feet are oh, this is that's badass, that's smart. I've never seen that in a movie before. It that moment really didn't exist in mainstream movies prior to that. I'm certainly not saying that nobody ever did something smart in a mainstream movie, but generally people with guns were just shooting at each other or like shoot the gas truck so it blows up. Yes. But it's that guy going like, shoot the glass, because I noticed when I talked with him, he has no fucking shoes, right. so he can't run around. It's, it's, just, it's like so simple and brilliant, and it was threaded in the opening moments of the movie. There's nothing in the this plane. movie that isn't incidental, that yeah. that is incidental, uh, or is whatever. You know what I'm trying to say. Right. Everything. There are no accidents in this movie. Correct. Everything and is Everything is serves multiple purposes. Set up. Right. And the setup in and of itself is entertaining enough that you go, well, this is just them trying to infuse humor or character, personality into these moments. You know, it'd be the obvious laziest version of McTiernan's, like, let's make, let's put joy in this movie. It's just, we'll find ways to make scenes a little more interesting. But then they look at whatever the joy is and they go, well, what could that serve later? What does that set up? How could that put a character deeper in the hole? Um, there's there's the, I'm a dork who likes magic, right? And there's You sort, are a dork who I'm likes I'm a dork magic. who likes magic. Okay, yeah, I see. Yeah, and yeah. there's the type of magic trick that is sort of dependent on the magician making you think that they fucked up the trick mm -hmm. where suddenly the whole audience leans in. You're like, oh shit, I'm seeing the rare night where the guy fucking blows it in front of a crowd. Right. And then you realize, oh no, the failure was a setup for the actual trick, which I think this movie does a million times where you're like, the things I think it's setting up are actually often kind of red herrings. Such as? Such, well, such as the whole terrorism thing. Well, obviously that. They're making you focus on the wrong thing for so much of the movie, which is like... Well, the terrorism thing is brilliant because, right, it makes the villain smarter than they initially seem, yes. right? You're like, oh, okay, these guys are running a con. That's kind of clever. Yeah. You're kind of, like, impressed by it. Yeah. It makes our police force and especially FBI, who are obviously the comic geniuses of the film, yes. them coming in late, just seem like incompetent morons, which I love about this movie. Like, you know, that like no one really knows how to deal with this in any significant way. And the more it escalates, the worse we get at it. Yes. It's a classic post-Vietnam movie thing where it's just yeah. like, yeah, America's completely ill-equipped to deal with anything like this. Yeah. Um, those are my points. I think that's it. I don't know. Is there a little Beverly Hills cop in the DNA of this movie? I think there is. Sure. I think I yeah. think that's key. Yeah. That predates this, right? Like it it's, does. Yes. it's yeah. hey man, this is a guy who don't belong in LA and he's in LA. And because he don't belong in LA, that's why he's the guy for the job. Totally. Yes. No, I mean, both of them are movies that basically have contempt. There, there are one good cop movies, right? 
which which people now look at with a little bit of itchiness. But they're movies that are like really looking at the the absolute sort of like bone deep failure of our institutions at large. And then the only guys who work are the guys who basically see through the bullshit of everything else. It's not that they're playing by their own rule book. It's sort of more that they function like they're thinking of things as human beings first and not as cops and not as procedure, you know? And that so much Mm -hmm. of it is you see that they are man of the people, that they relate to people directly as human beings on a one-to-one level. But yeah, it's... It's so funny that, like, off of this movie, there then becomes this, like, action movie Mount Rushmore that is, well, Schwarzenegger, Stallone, and Willis. And they become, you know, the three buddies who are doing Planet Hollywood. And when The Expendables comes around, well, even if it's cameos, the movie's not going to have any value if you don't get those three guys in one scene together for at least a minute. And you're like, Willis is the opposite of everything they're doing. Beverly Hills Cop happens similarly kind of by accident because Stallone drops out because he wants it to be tougher and bigger and bloodier and that they're like, fuck, this movie's a moving train. We have everything set. We got to plug someone else in, put in the unconventional guy, put in the guy who would never be in an action movie. The unconventional guy from television. Yep. Yep. And the guy you wouldn't imagine in this type of setting. And in both cases, They're hiring the guy for the comedy and the relatability and whatever, and they're surprising people by over-delivering on, holy shit, this guy plays the stakes really well. You talk about the barefoot thing, right? Right. Movies are weird to fucking shoot because you go wildly out of order. And as an actor, especially the less verbal the script is, the less dialogue-based things are, it can be really fucking hard to track your character in this sort of disjointed, disorganized way. Action movies are that times a million because you have to shoot so many tiny little pieces. And especially a movie like this where it's like he's going back to every room six times. There are scenes that on paper maybe seem very similar to a scene he's already shot three times. How do you track the progression of this? Well, one of it is we we know what his outfit is. Yeah. And we the can white, constantly, the, the white, uh, you know, vest and the yeah. Play with the visuals of the amount of damage he incurs, how mm-hmm. dirty it gets how made up he is, how much soot, how much blood. That's a thing that grounds the audience in understanding where he is in the progression, but also I have to imagine grounds Bruce in that. And then every time they remind you, oh yeah, and lest you forget, he's also barefoot. You have these moments where the movie kind of stops, where he has to take a breath and look at his feet and pull the glass out. Yeah. Kevin? You said soot and blood. Yes. When you were talking about him. That I oh, I only I just don't want it to go away. Please, and there was a a moment in time where a, a, you know I worked with Bruce yeah. uh, as an actor in the in the Die Hard sequel, Live Free or Die Hard, and then as a director of the movie A Couple of Dicks, which was then named Cop Out. Um, at one point in the shooting of Cop Out, he goes, um, well, "You, you do close up of me here?" I said, "Yeah," and he goes, oh, "You're not doing it right." I said, "What do you mean?" He's go. He goes. This literally to me and Dave Klein. He yeah. goes, blood, soot, sweat, dark. That's how you shoot Bruce Willis. And I was like, one more time. And he goes, blood, soot, sweat, dark. And he was like, think about it. And I did. And I was like, oh yeah. He's like, that's when I look my best. And the other thing he for the audience at home, do, he, you just gestured to the angles of your face while sort you were of like uh, t- spectacles, testicles. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Very, very specific. Yeah. He mapped quadrants of his face with his hands to s- show where the blood, the soot, the sweat, and the dark went. 
He's like, that's how I, I absolutely look my best. Shoot, if you're going to shoot a close-up, you got to give me one or three of those elements. And then wow. the thing that he insisted upon, and I saw it over and over again while I shot the movie, and then it infected my work, and I still do it to this day, yeah. is throughout the shooting of anything, you know, he would be, he's on camera. Mm -hmm. And your off-camera person is generally beside the camera, behind the camera, delivering the lines as you're shooting Bruce's coverage. Bruce would always go to the person who was off-camera. He'd be like... Tilt the head. While they were doing the... Get closer oh, to the lens. Yeah. And I would be like, what is that about? And he goes, lens is how you connect. He's yep. going, I want my eye line as close to the lens as possible because that's me directly connecting with, the, connecting with the audience. That's the secret. He always had the mm. secret. Mm. And so for the rest of my career after that, like everything I shoot, I'm always like, get, can you get close? Can well, you just stand, stand sure. as close to the camera as possible so that the person off camera is not looking down the barrel yeah. at the camera, but close enough where the intimacy level completely changes. He, that's what Bruce Willis taught me. I'm sure you've experienced this as well. It sounds like maybe before, up until the point you worked with Bruce Willis, but there's so many times I've been on set, you're shooting coverage, and then the DP goes, this is going to sound strange, it's going to feel strange. But actually, what would help for eyeline is if you look at this corner of the map box, or you yeah. look at this C-stand, and they're going to stay where they are, and the voice is going to be coming from the other side of the room, and your body's going to be tilted in the wrong way, but I'm telling you, it will cut together. And they're right. On a technical level, they are right. It cuts together. I do think there's something you're missing. And even if you can feel it, and even if you're going off the muscle memory of, well, I did six takes where I was looking at them, and I kind of know what they're doing now. There is a difference. And what, like, is captured on camera is always the energy you're sharing with another person or with your environment or whatever it is. So much of this movie is Bruce alone from right. when the first shots are fired, having conversations at a remote distance or talking to himself which is another thing that makes him a fucking movie star, I would contend, is this guy sells the notion of talking to himself so fucking well where it doesn't feel like a story cheat, where you absolutely right. believe, especially for a guy who is now reeling from the frustration of failing to have the productive, mature conversation, right? We've seen him have yeah, I guess, fun. Right? Like, if he gets there yes. and says to Bonnie Bedelia, like, you know what? I'm an asshole. Like, you know, how about after this party, we go out, grab dinner? Or, and maybe she's like, you know, why are we going to the party? Let's right. leave now. Yes. And there is no movie. <laughs> All that shit right, happens right. without them. He, you buy it, and it, it's it's sort of seated in the first moment of him doing the fist with his toes. Mm -hmm. And he goes like, fist with the toes? Who knew it works? Like, you're like, yeah. okay, this guy does he'll sort take of remark note. upon stuff. Oh, and he does and talk both. to himself. That's true. That's true. He'll yes, take yes, a yes, note. Yes. He'll sort of like, and it makes sense in kind of like a cop way of like, let me do the math. What What's going on here? What am I not putting well, together? Well, as we all as we all know, you know, internet education teaches us that like the smartest people talk themselves through yeah. tasks. Yes. Like, you know, it used to be a time where if you talk to yourself, people are like, what are you talking about? But it's, uh, you know, they, they found that folks that literally narrate their tasks yeah. as they're doing it are far more effective at the task. It adds a level of cognition because hearing yourself speak, um, your brain reacts faster, oddly enough, than just thinking a thought. Um, so when you speak out loud in doing a thing, like, I'm going to move that can. Right. Your, your neurons are firing faster than you just thinking, 
I'm going to move that can. Well, I, like, I don't know how that works, yeah. but that's what I've It's the version it. of like, hey, remind me to take this with me when I leave. When you say that yeah. out loud to a friend and they're like, I'm never going to remember that. And you're like, no, but the fact that I just said it to you means that I'll remember it versus if I just thought it to myself. But he plays it so well. I mean, you were calling out me being very quiet, my impression of him at the beginning. But I think that's part of it is like, yeah, he's got a register and a pitch where you're like, this is the exact degree that this guy talks to himself out loud. I just and like, I don't think some of the, you know, other guys in this like the Schwarzenegger. I mean, I guess they sort of talk to themselves, but it doesn't feel natural like him. No, he's got the, like, oh, fucking stupid, you idiot, kind of like, yeah. you're just quietly sort of doing the recap and, and then like, trying to think how to correct on the next Because then you'd be dead too, asshole. Right. Be, right. You know, like, you'd think that any, I mean, this script made it, obviously, but, like, everyone would be like, well, he spends the whole movie either talking to himself or yeah. talking on a walkie-talkie. Like, is that going to work? Like, it's kind of a challenge to throw at an actor. Yes. And... Yes, you're helped by the fact that the rest of the cast is so winning that if you're not with him, you're still with the movie. Yeah, and as the stakes but of the movie still. increase, then every 10 minutes you're like, right, and he's fucking barefoot too. He doesn't have any goddamn feet! Like, there are these things they keep Shoes. on sort of pinning in. I mean, the, the, the establishment of the one undeveloped room that has uh, the, the cutouts, the, like, payboy, playboy pinups, right? Where the first time it's just the gag of like, oh, well, here's the kind of guy he is. He can't walk past it without doing a double take and looking right. at the naked lady. Sure. And then starts to become every time he's back through that office, he taps the picture. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you're like, well, that's a funny character detail, but it's also reminding us, I know why this room is different from the other room. Right. I remember like where this room, room is. Yeah. And uh, McTiernan, the commentary is with him and Jackson Degovia, who is the production designer. And he said, McTiernan kept on saying to him, this is a jungle movie. Right. I don't want to think of this as like a, a, a skyscraper movie. Right. And he's obviously coming right off of Predator. And the thing that excited him most is like, you have the Nakatomi offices, which are really kind of garish and over-designed. And this idea of like, uh, it was very Frank Lloyd Wright inspired. Uh, they've sort of bought these expensive art pieces and reconstructed them and everything. And then you have all these like unfinished, undeveloped rooms where he's just in this weird kind of like literal urban jungle of just steel beams and open walls. Do you know what the film was called in France and Spain? What? The Crystal Jungle. Well. Isn't that interesting? Uh, it is. Yeah. I remember I had this on wait, DVD. Wait, Die Hard was called The Crystal Jungle? Yep. But probably because Die Hard is not something it's that funny. translates. Like, like, right? What is like, the, what's the, remember the episode of Rick and Morty where the dude, you know, the interstellar guy. Like is a huge Dyer fan. He's yes. like, in my world, it's called this. On <laughs> yeah, this planet, yes. it's called this. <laughs> right, but that's another ep like example of that episode is all based on the idea of everyone referring to it as doing a diehard. Right, right, right. Where it's almost become like one of the great forms of storytelling. Uh, diehard, the title comes from uh, Last Boy Scout that Shane Black really? had titled it Last Boy Scout. Didn't come from Scout. the battery. Well, this is what they're saying, that sure, sure. the studio was hesitant because of the battery right, right. to give it that title. But Last Boy Scout had been called Die Hard. Joel Silver also had that script. Right. Was developing Obviously that at that the same time. that gets made a couple years later. Yeah. And was like, Shane, do you mind if I just take that title and place it over here instead? Um, wow. When, like, you did Live Free or Die Hard. That's a mm -hmm. movie that's not a Die Hard movie until it gets turned into a Die Hard movie, like we said, right? Right. Like... What is the, is there a diehard, like, 
infrastructure at that point? Like, are there people who are like, we're guardians of the diehard world? There isn't really, right? That's it's kind like of the just problem. Bruce no, at that the point? exact, by the time we're doing, and I say we because I was in the movie, by the time we were doing Live Free or Die Hard, um, it was the Fox flick and Hutch Parker was mm-hmm. in charge of it, but he hadn't been around when the earlier right. ones were made. Yeah. Um, Mick Tiernan didn't direct Live Free or Die no. Hard, obviously. Um, it, that was uh, Lenny Wiseman. Um, so, you know, you're already kind of removed from the formula. There's no Kevin Feige to the Die right. Hard universe right. that I saw, except for Bruce. Bruce for there was Bruce. a moment right. I told the story like a, a zillion times before, but um, when I first got to uh, Live Free or Die Hard, I was supposed to work one day and I wound up being there a week because there was like this kind of slow slash uh, shutdown of sorts um, going on between Bruce and the studio. They'd been shooting for months already and then they were finishing in Los Angeles with stage-based stuff and my character, the warlock, had a fucking mom's you were a basement hacker man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was a hacker. You were the hacker. So um, when, we're, when do I get there... Um, He's like, I'm not shooting. We're not shooting. We're not doing this. And he turns to me and goes, Kevin. And I hadn't really, I'd never met him before mm-hmm. at this point. Like it was just on Live Free or Die Hard that we met. I'm a massive like fan. And um, he turns to me. He's like, Kev, you know, basically we've been shooting this movie for like almost a year. And every problem we've ever had, we say, you know what? We'll do that in the warlock scene. So now right. we're at the warlock. You're scene. the cleanup yeah. for all of the narrative like issues, basically. Yeah. yeah. So he's like, we need to like answer a lot of things that we left open until this moment in time, and I don't think the scene does that. And I was like, well, I, I, I could, I could take a shot. You, Skip right. was the screenwriter, but he was like, you know, you want to go off with Skip and take a shot at? I was like, uh, sure, man. What do you want to say? And Bruce told me all the stuff he wanted to say, and like all the stuff that would tie things up. Um, you know, about Mr. Gabriel or whatever the hell. And then I went off with Skip to his trailer yeah. and we wrote a new version of the warlock scene. I gave it to Bruce and Bruce was like, this is great. This is everything. This is the scene I want to do. We're shooting this. And they sent it to the studio. And I guess the studio was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This has nothing to do with what we've been doing so far. We didn't approve these pages, blah, blah, blah. So um, we had stopped we were just waiting because Bruce wanted to shoot the scene. The studio didn't want to shoot that scene. Len was caught in the middle. Um, and in this standstill, Bruce had his personal chef make like chicken fingers for everybody. Instead, <laughs> we all had Bruce <laughs> gotcha. chicken while we sat around barbecue and telling stories, cool. waiting to figure out what was going on. And then I saw one of the like, you know, s- swaggiest Hollywood moves I've ever seen in my life something that would come out of a script about making movies you know hollywood movies and shit so hutch parker is on a, a flip cell phone with bruce willis it's finally come to this head we're not shooting until bruce gets the answer he wants and so the studio and the person of hutch parker calls and you know we're all sitting around outside of his trailer and they're like studio it's hutch and they give him the phone and he bruce is standing there amongst us and so um he goes hutch uh, so I want to shoot this scene as is. And we don't hear the other side of the conversation, right? All we hear is Bruce. And he's like, uh-huh. He's going, yeah, but this answers a lot of the questions. Okay. All right. Hutch, let me ask you this. Who's your second 
choice to play John McCarthy. <laughs> right. Hell yeah. He goes, that's yeah. what I thought. Okay, bye. And he hung up and we went and shot the scene that he wanted to shoot. So if there was any gatekeeper, it was it's him. the guy right. who'd been there for every diehard. It was John McClane. He was like looking to safeguard his character, make him consistent, uh, you know, keep things in a diehard world and stuff. But was also like, you know, knew exactly how powerful he was as well. Well, that's, look, to be fully candid, that is a movie I have a lot of struggles with. Uh, but that, your sequence, I'm it not being just saying PG, this. It being PG-13 Huge. is the thing I bumped into the hardest. Everybody yeah, did. That, you know, that's especially right. that, that Especially because he film. doesn't get to utter the full yippee-ki-yay motherfucker. Yes, he you doesn't. Know, you're, the gunshot cuts it off. I remember yeah. that. Right? That yeah. I think is a problem, and I also think there's just like an era problem where a diehard movie needs to be of a certain size, and the size of movies at that point in 2007 has gotten like so gargantuan, and so the scale of it needs to be bigger, and he needs to be hanging off the wing of a plane yeah. and driving cars into helicopters and stuff like that. That feels a little removed from the heart of who McLean is. I think Justin Long is funny in that movie, but I also think the dynamic is a little too much like, here's a guy that McLean can bounce jokes off of versus you watch this and McLean has this interesting balance of like, he wants to be weary above it all, smart assy, but there is this part of him that is like a mensch that, that like yeah. just immediately connects to anyone else who's reaching out to him as a real person, you know? And I think like you could tell with Justin, you know, since it's Joel Silver. Yeah. Um, it's the the DNA of the, you know, fast talking, new to the franchise character probably finds the seeds in Leo gets in oh, Lethal yes. Weapon. Yes. When absolutely. Joel Pesci joins and suddenly, you know, you're like, hey, I like my lethal weapon formula and they right. have this guy and you're like he really brings something to the mix he's funny as hell and he's putting our characters on the back foot same thing they were able to accomplish like with justin's character where they're like you know at this point die hard by the time they do live for your die hard we're how many years removed from the original die hard 20 and even Just though it's, yeah it's very well known of course you know as you mentioned movies have gotten bigger and more bombastic yeah. So they're hedging their bets by being like, let's get somebody in there to comment on the action, uh, to heighten the fact that John McClane is a analog man in a right. digital world. Yeah, yeah. But I also think, you know, you're you're comparing it to Leo Getz and the difference is like Getz is the annoying like third guy. Right. Intercepting a like perfectly honed duo act. Versus right. McLean has this weird, like, he is a lone wolf, but it's kind of because he fucks up his own relationships. He wants to connect to other people, but he keeps on getting in his own way right. a little it bit. It is tough in Lear Fried, Live Free or Die Hard that he is divorced at that point. Right. And you're yeah. like, look, that makes sense. This guy seems impossible to be married to. Yes. But it's so, you know, the juice of Die Hard is that they figure it out. Like, is that they're yeah, walking that's, off together. That's, that's when you see that's the secret the weapon of Die right. Hard, the previously heretofore in this episode, unsung Bonnie Bedelia. Yes. Like, um, that's, there's 100%. a reason you go on the journey and you give a shit about his love life because, like, all the power and intensity yes. that she has to stand up to her husband in that scene and be like, you know, you got to remember when this movie was made. It's not too far removed from Mr. Mom, right? Which yeah. was like a movie about 
oh my God, women entering the workplace while the man stays home or the man, you know, the woman is doing a job while the man is also doing a job. So it was early enough for that to be a factor in the plot where it's just like, well, here's something new. She got a job and she moved to the other coast. And as you said, most other movies that are dealing with that, that is the central premise and it's a comedic premise calling out how unusual that is versus this is part of just the table setting of the movie. And it's one of the fundamental character flaws of McLean is that he clearly has struggled to adapt to this, right? And like you you look at their relationship and it would be so easy to make him just a piece of shit, right? right? In a way that would fuck up the movie at large. To have him right. really step in it and do something horrible or set up a really bad sort of history of whatever in their relationship versus like this guy stopped doing the work. It is so clear. She plays it so well where she is so frustrated because all she wants is for him to show up and do the fucking end of Jerry Maguire's speech where he's like, I figured it out. I figured it out. I've been a fucking child. I've been a moron. I'm ready to show up and like reinvest in this marriage and fucking do my side of the heavy lifting. And instead he keeps on just sort of stumbling over it, you know? And she's sort of like, I keep opening doors for you to step up to the plate. And you know what's the, 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 this is, um, Bonnie Bedelia is a, a great choice. Who was she? I, she? I don't have much of a sense of who she was before Die Hard. Who she was for me before this movie came out was she was in a movie called Heart Like a Wheel. Yes. Oh, yeah. Cha-Cha, she got a Globe nom Marvel, for that. Right. Maroney. Yeah. Like yeah. she played the, the race car driver. Right. Um, so, I, I, you know, that, that was in high rotation on the movie channel in the early days of cable. So that's what I was most familiar with her from. Uh, is presumed innocent before or after that? I think it's after. That's uh, like a year or two later. That's 1990. I mean, uh, she had the one-two punch of Die Hard and Presumed Innocent. And Presumed Innocent is a fantastic, you know, yeah. Alan J. Pakula, twisty, turny courtroom thriller where she, you want to talk about a monologue. She gets a monologue in the third act of that movie that's a stunner. That movie yeah. rules. Um, she's so stealth. Bonnie yeah. Bedelia. Yeah. I get, you know, she's you also, cast Meryl Streep, you cast yeah, like, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, Emily Blunt. You're like, you know what you're going to get and there's going to be great performance. But she is so stealth because nobody's expecting her to be the powerhouse. No. And I think that's why it was so smart to cast her. I don't know if it was because she was huge at the moment or something like that, but <sighs> it was a very human choice for for Holly Gennaro, Holly McLean. I He liked her in Heart Like a Wheel. Like, I think, you know, had a lot of respect for her as an actor. It is like her and Reginald Vell Johnson. It's like you're not picking the biggest name. Yeah. Like, supposedly right. the studio wanted Robert Duvall for Reginald, for, for Al Powell. Which, which like, you're like, that's crazy. It yeah. overpowers the movie. Yeah. Um, but also, he's picking these pretty warm actors, you know. The moment you're paying Bruce Willis $5 million, you're not going to be able to pay. Well, that's another I, good I was going to say, yeah, I think yeah, you really, you've, you've salary capped you yourself. You, yeah, you're, you're money balling right now. So you, you've given <laughs> right. a lot of a lot of money to that so guy. So it's like, so I don't know, like, this guy well, was in a play get, I liked. He <laughs> yes. should be the main villain. <laughs> Moneyball's money a great analogy. It's like they've gotten themselves in this situation where they overspend on Willis so much right. they actually just have to cast for right. ability they, and type. They, but they also need right. like the pitcher who throws weird and that's why they can get him. You like, just you need know, to get yeah. on base. Like they are <laughs> right. using sabermetrics yes, where they're yes. like, don't think of this as a commercial calculation. <laughs> Who fits on the poster? Think about what gets us on base. 
We have to <laughs> like Al Powell. She, we have she, to hate Hans Gruber. She, she is you know? fantastic. She's you know her you know her maiden name is Culkin and she's Macaulay Culkin's She's Macaulay aunt, Culkin's aunt. Uh which is funny. I Culkin dad Are you serious? Sister. She is the aunt. Right. She's the of sister all of, of the Kit Culkin. Culkin. Right. Yeah. Yes. yes. The uh, notorious parent of the Culkin family. Which once you know it you really see it. And like Well she, now it rewrites history where I'm like, wait, all the Culkins are Nepo babies? <laughs> <laughs> They're all Bedelia nephews. Yes, <laughs> the most insidious Bedelia baby. I mean, I had no, I no idea, man. That's when, that's crazy. What a weird connection. Yeah, when she was in the Parenthood show, which is mm. thirty years later. Yeah, um, where you know she's like the grandma. She's like the matriarch. Did, did you ever watch the Parenthood show? I never Griffin? did. She's wonderful in it. Yeah, but I was truly like, where has she been? Yeah. Like, obviously, she's in Die Hard too. That's kind of and presumed innocent. Like, so like I feel like I just you know you don't hear much from her. She works throughout the '90s. She's got credits. You're right. There's there's a bit of a slowdown in the early 2000s. I don't know. I mean, like the other big thing she had done is Salem's Lot, uh, the uh, Stephen sure. King uh, TV adaptation of that. That's, that's a, right. That's her other she big was role. on Salem's Lot with David Soul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but like her, Vel Johnson. Even someone like Paul Gleason, like I remember Ebert's review, which is kind of notorious, mm -hmm. is like there's too many like chiefs that we keep cutting to. Yeah, because there are like there's like sort of three of the same guy, right? Like that sounds like it sounds like such an Amadeus note. Like right. too many chiefs, too many yeah. chiefs. <laughs> <laughs> like uh, like so there's like because there's Paul Gleason and then there's you know William Atherton who's not a chief, he's a reporter, right. and then you know you've got fucking. Uh, Thompson and Tom Johnson and Johnson. Johnson Johnson. You right. know, like, and it's like, it's a lot, of, but like, that's the point to me is like what Gruber is creating this like forest from the trees situation. It's the other movie right. that I think this film cribs from a lot in a really smart way is like, what if you turned uh, Dog Day Afternoon into a full on action thriller? Yeah. No, good call. Right. Because it has that similar like three ring circus kind of thing. You know, you have a hero. Weaving between, there's the sort of law enforcement, there's the crime at the center, you know, there's the tension within the building, and then there's the media. Right, right. There's the public. Like, think about, like, Inside Man, the Spike Lee movie, yeah. is kind of a version of this where Hans Gruber is the hero. Right. Yes. Um, that's totally true. And again, where the guy is like, people will be so distracted by the one crime, they won't realize the actual crime but that the, I'm pulling off. Yeah. Right. I'm, I'm yeah. certainly yeah. not saying right. that's also a diehard movie. No, no, but, but it kind of is. I mean, it's, a, it's sort it's of a, a smart inversion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But there's so much clever abstraction in this movie where, I mean, it's, I know we're jumping all around, but it's yeah, like whatever. the moment where you're like, is this one of the greatest movies ever made? Am I watching one of the greatest movies ever made? Is when Hans and McLean come face to face and you watch Hans Gruber realize that McLean doesn't know who he is. Right. That McLean he has slips into oh god and he Bill, goes into Bill his Clay. American accent. Bill Clay, yes. which that sequence is so much shorter than I always remember. Yeah, you're it always being. like, okay, this is an entire I'm 20 like, minutes. A, it's, like, right. it's two minutes. Right. Yeah. But it's it's like a trick. Once again, you talk about like a magic trick that this movie does over and over again, which is it is teaching you the stakes, the rules, the relationships, the geography so well, but distracting you from what do the characters know? Because we have this omniscient God view of the whole situation. 
And what we're forgetting is every character has a specific sliver of their own understanding. Law enforcement gets this. The media is reporting on it this way. So the public thinks the story is this. Inside Nakatomi Plaza, what do people think? And then you have these moments where, like, you get to have the audience do the math in their head and go, oh, right. He wouldn't know what his fucking face is. Yeah. Gruber's taking stock of everyone who's in the building because he knows it's just a holiday party. So if he sees a face that he hasn't seen by process of elimination, it has to be the cowboy. But McLean hasn't seen almost anyone at the party because he was going in just trying to talk to his wife, ignoring everyone at the party, being annoyed by all these phonies, you know? Should we talk about the explosions? They're very good. I'm trying to think of like what else in Die Hard we need to touch on. Let's wait. Let's hit the Bill Clay scene real quick. In, in the lore of the making of that movie, I seem <laughs> to remember some sort of like, oh, we added that. Like it wasn't in the script. We added it because Bruce was like, I don't have a scene with Alan. Yeah. That so makes sense that because when it happens in the movie, you kind of are like, really? Like we've done a lot of movie. Like yeah. we're going to have them meet now and like have this whole like, and that's why it is fast, I think. But it is crucial that they see each other before the showdown mm-hmm. at the end. Yes. Okay, you agree with me. No, I agree. I think uh, that scene works. Wholeheartedly. Yeah. No, yeah, it's yeah. like every 20 minutes, it feels like this movie introduces, it adds another layer onto the cake, yeah. right? Where you're like, Powell maybe doesn't come in until minute 45, close yeah. to an hour. Like, it takes a while. The the uh, Gruber's gang comes in around 20 minutes. The Johnsons aren't introduced until like an they're hour so and 30 fun. minutes. They, they in. make me laugh so much. But there's such mm. a delicate sort no of relation. Jenga tower no relation. being built no as this whole situation gets more and more out of control. Yeah. Uh, I just, I mean, yeah, just Robert Davi saying like, it's just like Nam and the guy being like, I was in junior high. <laughs> that guy is the best name. What's his name? The other guy. Uh, Grand L. Bush oh, yeah. is the other actor. That guy's great. Is his real name? That's his real name. I mean, it's his, it's his Hollywood name, at least. I don't know. And then who is it? Who, is it Rick Overton is in the street? Uh, like, is that right? Rick Overton. I can't, I can't turn this off. Like, hey, um, I shut this Is it Rick Ducommon? Rick Ducommon. That's it. That's it. I always oh, get Overton. Oh, the guy who's Duchamin like, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. He um, was a comic. In the in the eighties, yes, um, I saw him on a lot of stand up stuff, and he, they gave him the perfect kind of one scene comic it, relief sequence thing, that right. seemed to have been necessitated by like we don't have Bruce Willis every day, so let's let's shoot a scene out here. Yeah, but there's also just a, a much like the Dog Day Afternoon thing. Part of the fun for the audience is watching this situation somehow bleed and get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Talking about the sort of, like, film grammar of this movie, right? And it's sometimes cited as, like, the first movie to do this. It certainly gets credit for being, like, the first mainstream major studio movie to do this. Right. But talking about the 10 years of McTiernan in the lab where he's trying to, like, experiment with the language of film and then reapply it in the least pretentious way possible, he was obsessed with the notion of cutting on movement. Sure. Which the dogma was... No, no uh, obvious uh, joke intended there. You cannot do that. You you complete a camera move. The camera lands and stays in place right, for a couple of seconds sure. for the audience to settle before you cut out of it. And it was much mm. like when D.W. Griffith was cutting from like one room to another. People were like, you can't do this. Audiences are going to vomit. They will think they've transported (laughs) through space. There was this feeling of like you are going to physically disorient people, not to like a crossing the line way, but they will get ill 
if you cut right. on movement. Yeah. And he was you're like, going to, you're going to Pikachu these people yeah, if you basically. cut from one room to another. It is wild <laughs> that people forget that Pikachu is the thing that gave everyone seizures because it was like two years before Pokemon came to the U.S. It was right. its own news story enough to be yeah, later the, a there, Simpsons there's episode. There's a kids cartoon that gave people like epilepsy right, in you were Japan. like, it was Pikachu. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's and Porygon, not to be nerdy, but you know he's fighting Porygon in that episode. But but he was like, <laughs> oh shit! I mean, just you know, deep cuts reveal yeah, right yeah, there. Yeah, you know. When McTiernan's at AFI, when he's making short films, when he's doing commercials, he had cut a lot of his own work. And like a lot of guys who work in commercials, they were like, this is my playground to test out things I can hopefully apply to movies later. Yeah. And he studied a lot. How does the human eye observe a frame? How do I compose a frame so that they start looking over here? And then when their eyes start to naturally drift over to this corner, I'll move the camera over to link that up to the next story point I want. I mean, there's so much of this movie that's like, you know, you're you're following Al Powell on the ground and the camera pans over to the side of the building and you're connecting now. Okay, so he's here and there's that, whatever. But he also was there's like... There's that one shot, the one shot I always love where they're on the ground and they're looking up at the top of the building and you're just seeing flashes of light. Yes. Then you cut to the building and yes. it's a full-blown firefight, louder yes. than fuck dangerous as hell but from a distance on the ground it's just little flashes at the top the transitions of the are so good or there's one moment where al powell radios into i guess his superior and the the camera is like on tracks moving alongside with him and then you catch in the background a police car turned over and you're like oh that's the collateral damage of the chase that is now happening right. surrounding this like you're just very quickly getting seeded the stakes of all of this expanding but he was like this is my fucking playground to prove this point that you can do this and beyond that that's the way to make this you were saying action movie it's got to move right it's a movie i want mclean constantly moving i want the camera moving i want to move through space i think think what happens in in stuff like the guy in the street who's like i gotta shut the power down we're talking about cutting to the outside world yeah most of the people's reactions in die hard most of the characters across the boards don't track from any previous action movie, which is why it works really well. Like in a real action movie, like they're like, cut that fucking cord. And the guy's like, aye, aye, sir. And they do. There's not this moment of like, well, I don't want to get in trouble for cutting everything and blah, blah, blah. Everything is humanized and everybody reacts in a way that is identifiable where you're like, yes, that'd probably be the way I'd react. As opposed to traditionally in movies, everyone had the right thing to say, the right thing to do, you know, the script armor is covering them. And this was not the first, but definitely one of the first in recollection where it felt like, um, okay, whatever they normally do, we're going to have them react like a real person would react. Absolutely. And also, like, none of these characters feel like plot functions, even the ones who are, because they all are vivid, specific, and relatable enough to some kind of everyday human behavior that you're like, well, I could see a whole movie of just this guy, right? Which then, like, Family Matters comes out of, why wouldn't you put this guy fucking Tuesday nights at 8 o'clock? Yeah, I want to see this right. guy with his family. For freaking 10 have, years. Have him bring the same yeah. fucking uniform I, over. I mean, I know that show is the Urkel show or whatever. You know, like, that's what it quickly became. But, like, it was on for nine years, yes. Family Matters. And like, the only reason it existed was, as you said, becomes the Urkel show right. off of, this is the basically the Sergeant Al Powell spinoff show. Let's right. just not pay the rights but get him as a cop at home, sort of like world weary in the same kind of way, but with a good heart. Yeah. Um, there was that one episode where he does the long monologue to Urkel about shooting a kid. 
<laughs> it <laughs> just is. like a diehard. And you're like, oh, yeah. Right, right. I mean, obviously, there's no way you could do it now. Like, it's yeah. so objectionable that the redemption arc is like, oh, he, he can fire his gun again. This cop yes. who shot a kid. Yes. <laughs> right. Now he gets to go back in the field. And, like, there's not even a caveat in it of, like, oh, he shot and wounded somebody. He, like, you know, it's yes. like, no, he killed a kid. Right? That's yes. the implication. A- absolutely. It is a 13 year old. Right, right. Yeah. Like, who had a water gun. Like, they don't even really sugarcoat it. I yes. just have to imagine that the Fox brass every year as this movie continues to play and continues yeah. to grow in, like, film history is just, like, what a fucking gift that it's a black cop and at the end of the movie he shoots the most Aryan looking yeah. dude <laughs> in the world. Because if you flip this, this movie would just be like it's so hard to touch today. It's it's yeah. it's 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 um and it's wild yeah. to watch it and be like, I still even with the 35 I mean, This is years, in the book. It's I, like yeah. this is built all the way back into the book. Al Powell. Uh, shooting the villain at the end is all the way to nothing lasts forever, whatever the book is called. Yeah, It's just wild that the movie gets you to the place where you're like, I want to see Al Powell shoot again. It's making you root for that sort of cathartic release, but it is the thing of like, this guy just isn't processing his shit. Sure, yeah. And and mind you, it's in the denouement. We've already been satisfied as an audience. The hero has survived, the villain has been killed, the building blew up, we saw spectacle. And so we're total day to mize, reunited with his wife. You know, she gets to punch William Atherton. Yeah, which and then that's great. all of a Incredible. sudden, in the midst of all this, you know, wait, this guy's not dead. Oh my God, he's gonna get John McClane. Oh, he didn't. Who got him? And you're like, oh. And it's obviously Al Pal, right? It's uh, you know, it's clockwork stuff. Yes, it's it's the thing that you forgot but was now, still left on the now shelf. Now it's clockwork yeah. stuff. Now, even yes. when we saw it in the theater, though, it wasn't clockwork yet. So you were yeah. like, Whoa. no, no. I mean, I'm I can only imagine like the theater exploding. I wish you know, I wish I could just go back in time and watch these fucking movies. Let's take a moment to to sing the praises of William Atherton, please. Um, because if I had had my way, I would have worked with three people from Die Hard. The role of, uh, of Mr. Svenning from Mallrats mm-hmm. was written for William Atherton. Why and we he sent it? it to him. We sent it to him and he was like, I don't want to play this role anymore. But like he's sick of he being meant, the tight ass kind of, yeah, sure. Sure. But I think he meant, I don't want to play this role anymore for this little amount of money because like <laughs> a year later he did biodome and he did play that guy. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And he like, you know, he's in the new ghostbusters this year, right? Yeah, like he's, he's coming back. back, but it's Michael Rooker in Mallrats, Right. I mean, you yeah, got Michael, good, we got lucky and yeah. as much as like our rebound was, was Michael Rooker for heaven's sakes. But yeah, I, I, I loved Bill Atherton, naturally, because of this and Ghostbusters, the one-two punch and whatnot. But like later on in my career, I was like, "Oh, let's get the guy from Die Hard, man." Well, it's funny because like, did you he, get that? I mean, he's so yeah, funny in Die Hard. He is the yeah. one guy in this movie who's coming in with the sort of like shorthand casting that we're saying this movie otherwise can't employ, perhaps because of budget. Yeah. Where the second he's introduced, you're like, "I get it. The Asshole. newsman is Walter Peck. <laughs> yeah. I have a cultural language for him. I'm I, like locked and loaded." You're he, like, I know this man. This man has no dick. Exactly. I mean, he talks a lot about... <laughs> he does have no... He talks a lot about how that really hurt him. People yes. are yelling at that from cars and all like that. Children yeah. yelling at it from yeah, school right, buses. Right. 
because you, know, so you realize and, and it bugs him. Yes, he was the male lead in Sugarland Express, Spielberg's yeah. first theatrical movie. He's Spielberg's first leading man, basically. And then he found himself in this very lucrative corridor, working in some of the most popular movies of the next decade, but always playing the guy who the hero fucking hated, and the audience <laughs> yeah. can't wait to see get embarrassed. And it was just like. The dickless thing was just such a clean handle of like for that to be the joke that everyone's going to repeat to you on the street. But not only that, it's Ghostbusters. So it's not just drunk adults at bars. It's children. It's like five year olds <laughs> pointing yeah, at you and saying kids. this man has no dick. That is pretty bad. The We did in Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. Um, there, you know, there's a running gag where people are screaming, Affleck, you the bomb and Phantom <laughs> yeah. Joe. And Affleck, like years later, was like, "Oh my god!" He's like, "Do you know now?" Everyone how actually often? says it. I mean, yeah. He's like, how idiots. Strangers <laughs> will scream at me." He's like, "Sometimes I'm with my children, and they'll scream, Affleck, you the bomb and Phantom Joe.'" He's like, "Thank That's you." That's so funny, though, as a full circle moment, because like w- when you write the joke, the joke is that's not the thing that anyone would say to Affleck. If people are coming exactly. up to Affleck on the street, that's the last thing they'd be yelling at him. And then by synthesizing it in the movie. It becomes the thing that ironically you know, people say to him. I've never seen Phantoms. <laughs> Phantoms good. My entire cultural relationship to that movie is Affleck. You the Bob would agree. Isn't like Peter O'Toole in that or something? Yeah. It's kind of like it's, Peter it's like, O'Toole is in it. Absolutely. There's just this the, the moment that Jay Jay's character like says uh, no. It's it's uh, they're having a conversation. It's Jay and Silent Bob and yeah. Holden McNeil from Jason Gaming. And and uh, he goes, um, you know, Ben's delivery is pitch perfect because he's the one I believe that says it first. He, he's like, they were talking about Goodwill Hunting, and he's like, yeah, I wasn't a fan. And he looks over, he's like, but Affleck was the bomb and Phantom Joe, <laughs> yeah. and yeah, and fing Jay's like, word, Phantom's like a motherfucker. Well, so joke, he signed right. his own death warrant by That's saying the, the line. Right, he knew. The <laughs> yeah. joke is sort of more on the characters of why would that be the one. And then the joke is intensified by being repeated over and over again. But I have to, to that ab- person's face. <laughs> right. I have to imagine a lot of people think that it's a movie you made up for a joke in your movie. Right. It is right. such a they're, forgotten they're film. When they, when they discover there's an actual phantom, they're like, <laughs> right. is he the bomb? <laughs> that, like, literally, that movie came out the same year that he was in Shakespeare in Love and Armageddon. Like, <laughs> yes. that, like I mean, I assume it was shot, you know, before Goodwill Hunting right. or whatever. But yeah. I mean, right. it's the it's story so I've told too many times on this podcast. But when I went up to Neil Patrick Harris and said, I love your work and Undercover Brother, and he just turned to me and went, that one? That one? <laughs> he didn't say thank you. He went like, the, why are you saying that to me? Hey man, he was the bomb in Undercover Brother. He was. Um, are there any other big? I mean, like thing. I thing I want to say. Now I have a machine gun. I don't know. Yeah. Like thing I want to say about the camera movement. <laughs> Go ahead. This is big, Go right? Ahead. But he was just like, I'd have this argument with studios, and they'd say it's impossible. And he's like, I've shot footage and cut it myself, and I know it's possible. Sure, I know it's sure. Difficult. Cutting on action. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. He used the term that I thought was really interesting, where he said you have to find sympathetic images. Mm. You have to be aware of the images you are constructing individually to make sure they will feed into each other. Right. And that you're thinking about the timing of how they process information. But he was like, the worst thing that could happen is you're filming the movie, the studio's getting the rushes, they're looking at the footage, watching it without you while you're on set and going, this guy doesn't know what the fuck he's doing before it's cut together. McTiernan talks a lot about he basically cuts in camera in a way that can be a little confusing because he's not doing conventional coverage. Mm. 
unless he's assembled it in the correct order. And he was like, I need to hire Verhoeven's guys because yeah. Verhoeven DeBond, does this right. in yeah, his yeah. Dutch movies. And he did it a little bit in RoboCop. But he's like, get the editor of RoboCop, get DeBond. They're both fluid in this language. Mm -hmm. They'll know how to take my direction on set and process the images in editing so that they'll have my back. Because he's like, the worst thing that fucks you is you have an editor who's not aligned with your vision. The studio watches the rushes and they go, are we crazy or are these bad? And the editor goes, yeah, this guy doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. Right. Then you're done. Then they start to put the vice grip around you. Um, and he said they were so worried about it that he didn't want to create a contingency plan where he didn't have movement in the shots. But for the first like two weeks, they did alternate takes at different tempos of movement where they timed out. Is it better if it's on like like a two five movement sure. or whatever it is? And then after two That's, weeks. That is so deep cuts right there. That, yes. That's a commitment to storytelling. On a movie that you wouldn't think no, rather someone than was just putting in that much thought. Giving up and being like, yeah, fine. If the studio's being right. a pain about it, let's just shoot coverage. And he was and like, like two yeah. weeks in, there was no pushback. They were seeing the results. Right. And I was hearing the edit that it was working. That and film he, was nominated for its editing at the Oscars. Yeah. Like the editing is top notch. But he gets right. into like, I'm just trusting my judgment on this now. I'm not doing the math. He doesn't uh, storyboard anything other than effect shots. Because he's like, I work organically. I see it in real time. It's mathematical. It's about the space. It's about the people. I, I don't want to have to like lock myself into something. And looking for these gifts that come out of the surroundings. I mean, the art direction in this movie is so fucking good because I talk about even I, I mentioned the the Playboy pinup. But there's so many little details like that where he like builds these spaces with central objects. Mm hmm. So that he knows if I'm cutting quickly, if I'm moving around, you understand which room you're in or which side of rooms they're in because here's the fountain, here's the art sculpture, here's where there's the rebar or the desk or whatever it is, you know? Um, but yeah, it's it's just, it's like, it is so uh, impeccably constructed in a way that makes me borderline angry. Don't be angry. I watch this movie and I go like, I don't understand how anyone could have the clarity of thought to keep all of this straight and coherent, let alone entertaining on top of that, which yeah. then takes never, charm. Never has so much effort been put into like telling essentially a make pretend story. So much logic yeah. to make it feel as real as possible and you know and i guess that's what we do in movies generally speaking but they kind of went out of their way and we talked about before the screenwriting who knows what and blah 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 mm -hmm. somebody recently told me that that was the key to writing you know uh for the studio like writing huge successful studio blockbuster movies um it's all about information denial yeah like when your main character knows something when the audience knows something when the villain knows something and at all in any given moment all three parties cannot know the same thing like there has to if if the villain is concocting something such as in die hard where he's presenting himself as a terrorist but really he's just a bank robber that information is denied to us for a long time but that information is known by the villain himself and right. the information is not known by the hero and then we get that information before the hero gets the information. The hero doesn't even really need that information, but we are informed at a certain point. It's all about when you let people know something that one of the characters or the main characters do. It, yeah. it, it was a real interesting breakdown where I was like, fuck, I wish I was a 
good writer because then I would just follow that formula and stuff. But well, it is that it thing. made sense yes. when I thought about it. Especially with like popular entertainment, you know, you, you talk about spending your hard-earned money going to the movie theater on a Friday night and wanting the kind of experience you had with your friends seeing Die Hard opening weekend where the audience is like falling in love with a real th a thing in real time and getting more and more excited by the moment. The thing that's so electric are those aha moments where the audience fucking figures it out. And especially if they figure it out a second or two before the characters do, they start to feel like personally invested in what's happening. Right. You know? You're a collaborator at that point. Totally. You're no longer just an audience member. You're kind of a collaborator with the story as well. Like you're in on it at that point. And it's like a difficult trick to pull off of how do you make sure the audience understands everything that's going on without spoon feeding it to them so that they feel clever and proud for putting it together and then being really excited at, oh, my God, I now know what the setup is. I understand what the stakes of this scene is now. Here's how things have now evolved or changed or devolved. And then this movie constantly, as you said, just twists it like. 15 degrees off of how you expect the scene to go. Somehow the worst thing is avoided narrowly or a worse thing happens than what you expected was the worst possible outcome. Mm. And almost always it's because the person who is affecting that change is behaving like a real person and not a movie character. They are all better looking and more charming and shinier than the people we know. But everyone in this feels like some relatable type of person, you know. Yeah. I mean, like, even down to, um, you know, Argyle or, like, characters that, like, Thornburg, you know, that you could just lift out of the script with no trouble whatsoever. Yeah. You guys got you guys got your laptop open to mm -hmm. information yeah. and stuff. Mm -hmm. I Somebody told me this, and I don't know if it's true or not, but somebody said we were, we were doing the Blues Brothers recently at uh, Smod Castle Cinemas. We also did Die Hard recently, but interestingly enough, now that Disney owns Die Hard because they bought Fox, that's yes. a movie that you can't. It's it's get harder to screen. In, in yeah, they make this yeah much it's harder. way harder to screen. Yeah, we did uh, like a Smodcastle experience. That's where like people like buy out the movie theater, and I host the screening for them. They bring like twenty friends and stuff, and they chose to show Die Hard, so it wasn't a public sales exhibition. Mm -hmm. So we were able to get away with it and stuff. But um, while we were doing a screening of Blues Brothers recently, somebody in the audience was like, uh, raised their hand during the Q&A. Because at Smod Castle, I get up and do Q&As for movies I had nothing to do with. <laughs> and so in the Q&A section after Blues Brothers, somebody raised their hand. And they're like, uh, the, the kid who tries to steal the guitar from the wall in the Blues Brothers and Ray Charles shoots the wall. And he's like, go on, get out of here. They said, that's our guy. It sure is. Check. Yes, it is. First is screen it? role. It is. Young guitar thief. That's wild. Devereaux that's White, crazy. I think, is the name of the actor. Yeah. Yes. Uh, he's still around. I uh, mean, that's like, yeah. think about it. Like, Die Blues Brothers and Die Hard, two, like, very important movies in my life. That kid was in both of them. That's nuts. It's pretty cool. And he's really funny. Yeah. I mean, him laughing at, you just got buck fucked on national TV or whatever. That's his sort of big triumphant moment, I think. Him laughing in a limo. Yeah. Is he in two? He is not? No. No. He's not. And he never returned. No. I mean, he did movies. It's just like... But not in a diehard. No. No. Because, like, two has, you know, Bonnie Bedelia, William Mather, and Reginald Bell Johnson, right? Like, right. they bring some people back. Yeah. Three obviously kind of has this, like, 
Hans Gruber legacy is like their pitch for that movie, right? Yeah, they're like, out in they're out in New York. They're so in they're New York. John's home right. turf. It's an obvious pivot. Like that makes sense. And then after that, I just feel like they get bogged down for too long trying to figure out what another Die Hard movie will be. Well, and four and, and then five it's like, the well, kids. we just have to make one. Right. right. But kids play by different actors. Yeah. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Where you don't have the same sense of history. I mean, it is to go back to this question. It's like this synthesizes the Bruce Willis movie so perfectly where it's like, great, audiences want to see this a billion times. I think part of, like, the struggle with Die Hard sequels for me is, at a certain point, you go, what's the difference between a Die Hard 3 and a Last Boy Scout? Right. You know? If the Bruce persona has these sort of earmarks that are the same, it's like, the, the defining thing is the sort of the tapestry of characters. It makes sense Die Hard 2 is like, well, fucking John McClane can't exist in a in a vacuum outside of Holly Gennaro and and Powell, you know, he needs those two. That's the sort of like trifecta. And then right. from that point on, it just becomes like a guy who doesn't do things exactly the way other cops would do them. I, can't, I tend to be like alone in a situation for some reason <laughs> involving guns. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's Die Hard in Airport, Die Hard in New York. Live for your Die Hard is sort of just like Die Hard with cyberspace. Yeah. Good day to Die Hard is Die Hard in Russia, right? Yes. Sort of. Yeah. At that point, like the FBI are kind of involved or the CIA or whatever. I don't know. I've only, I've never seen that more than once. That's the Jai Courtney one, right? That's yes. the Jai Courtney kid. one. And then there was this like supposed legacy sequel they were going to do and they were going to have flashbacks to like young McClane. Right. And like have a new actor play. I know about him. that one. I know about that one because when we were making uh, a couple of dicks, aka Cop Out. Yeah. Yes. Um, he was talking about that. He right. was talking about next up, he was going to do. Uh, a diehard movie, which um, he was really looking forward to because he, he set it up. He's like, I'm, I'll work in the beginning and at the end. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, I spend the opening in the movie tied to a chair, yes. setting up the story, and then the end of the movie, getting out of the chair and kicking ass. Yeah. So he's like, the rest of it is going to be a flashback. Yeah. to a young John McClane adventure in New York. But who the hell do you can you know it's this a, it's a curse. I mean but they, they, they didn't they didn't do that, right? Like the, no. the, no, the, and the one with were, Jai Courtney is not that at all. No, Jai they Courtney were like is not still like talking about it a couple years ago up yeah. until like his diagnosis was made public. They were still sort of right. putting that out there. But it, it, I, they had that problem with Jai Courtney too where it's just like I remember when they announced uh, uh, what that one's good day to die hard. The fifth one, yeah. Right. And there was sort of the the announced studio wish list of the 20 young actors they were looking at. And it was the most bizarre, like a list that included Shia LaBeouf and Paul Dano and Jai Courtney and Aaron Paul and just every possible direction of anyone who was between the ages of 25 and 37. Right. And it was so clear right. that they were like, we don't know how to replicate this. Do you cast a guy who seems like a movie star or is the point that you cast a guy who doesn't feel like an action star? And is there anyone who had that sort of in the that's this current stage of their career has the Bruce charm that would be surprising applied to this type of movie? Or do you cast the guy who now resembles more what Bruce has become? And it's like that's going to be twice as hard, 18 times as hard if you're trying to do it for McLean himself. But I'm also like it is one of those characters where. There, there is nothing you cannot extricate this from him. You know, I, I there's. Agree. I mean, I agree. I think it's. They won't, that, I don't think they'll remake Die Hard. You can't. 
I think you truly yeah, can. I, I, he is, he's a key man clause yeah. when it comes to that movie. Right. And it's why people try to make, you know, The Rock will make a movie like Skyscraper where he'll be like, I'm going right. to try to make my Die Hard. But I think people know that there's something sacrosanct about Die Hard itself. And it's it's building blocks are so basic that you can rip them off without feeling like you're just doing a carbon copy because it's not it's like it's a very simple dish prepared with incredible ingredients. You're right. It's spaghetti al limon or whatever. You're just right. like perfect. It's just like Parmesan cheese, lemon, like oil. Like that's all you have, whatever. And it's telling that even at the point where they were like, Bruce is getting old. Maybe the next Die Hard movie is wraparound of him going, I remember a younger adventure. They still know they can't make a movie that doesn't begin and end with him. And the moment right. it's now become public knowledge that he's not really in a condition to act, that movie is done. Even if it was only going to be two scenes at the beginning and the end, you cannot frame a Die Hard movie without him being the guy. And it is just part of that excitement of like, even when I'm watching this for the first time in the early 2000s, and I'm already a Bruce fan, and I've seen him in the Shyamalan movies, and I'm like, I like Bruce Willis a lot now. I want to go back and watch the movies that made him a star. You feel that excitement that's like listening to a band's breakthrough album where even if you exist in the future where you know the outcome, you feel the energy of this is clicking into place in real time. You can feel. Can we give some shout outs to other strong work by the leads that maybe people are unfamiliar with? For example, we all know Bruce Willis, of course, John McClane, many movies and stuff. Yeah. But have you ever fucked with Bruce Willis in the movie called, called Mortal Thoughts? With nope. Demi Moore. I've never seen Mortal Thoughts. Is that where you met Fucking, Demi Moore? Yeah. That's Bruce. No, no. They were already a couple of this Alan Rudolph. But movie. it's, yeah. it's, uh, and who's the other actor, the actress? Glenn um, Headley, who's a great actress Glenn who, Hadley, who died very young, a, which was very dead, sad. Uh, yeah. Um, what was it called? The Dirty Rotten Scoundrel. Yeah, it was in Dick Trace. Give yeah. yourself, uh, uh, some time to search out Mortal Thoughts because you get to watch Bruce Willis, um, like act. First yeah. and foremost, Bruce Willis was an actor and then he became a movie star. But in that movie, he gets to act another movie where you get to see him act and you see the natural charm, no gun in his hand or anything like that. And in Mortal Thoughts, he's playing a scumbag. And also in this movie, he's somewhat playing a scumbag as well. But it's one of his best performances. And I think it's uncredited. The Paul Newman movie, Nobody's Fool. He's so good. Man. Amazing. He is Bruce uncredited, Willis although. Steals, steals the it's movie. A big he's role. So I yeah, assume he was uncredited role. for some contractual, like, you can't put me on the poster, so just don't credit me, reason or whatever. He's great in that movie. Well, there was so, also, he is fantastic in that movie. Say again? No, no. There was this thing with Bruce Willis. I mean, it would sometimes sort of slip out in interviews where I, I think he loved the vast majority of the elements of being a hugely successful popular movie star, right? He loved the oh, freedom. Yeah the ability to make whatever movie he want, to get movies greenlit, whatever. And then there were times it would sort of leak out interviews, his frustration of the bigger I become as a movie star, the further I start to get away from like just being an actor. Yeah. And that there are certain roles the audience isn't going to accept me in. There's certain movies where if I sign on, the expectations are going to get out of whack. I, there's any movie I'm in stops being small even if the budget is limited. And if I do something like I want to make Breakfast of Champions, right, and that movie doesn't work, it is mocked at a level that is different than someone else just trying to earnestly make He's a Vonnegut adaptation. You know, it's like, why did this action star do this? Another Alan Rudolph movie. An yeah. Another another movie that Bruce came in for like one scene, a cameo, and 
fucking destroys, absolutely slays, is Rick Linklater's Fast Food Nation. Incredible in that. That's and that's that's where he does the speech about like there's shit in the meat, you just cook it. But that yeah. felt like he would understand sometimes. Uncredit me. Don't sell this movie on my name. It's not even a contractual thing. It's not an ego thing. I want to just be able to show up and for a day or two for one scene, just serve this as an actor. Just like dig in and do scene work and connect with my co-stars. And in certain cases with something like uh, Nobody's Fool, it's like, well, I want to fucking work with Paul Newman. Right. You know, I, and Robert if, Robert Benton as well. Yes. Know, for heaven's sakes. He's an extra. You can see him clearly on scene, on in screen. The, the verdict. In yeah. the verdict. Yeah. In yeah, yeah. Newman's final big monologue. And you can just imagine that guy who's like a couple years away from finally getting his big shot. He gets moonlighting like a year after that, maybe just being like, man, my dream is to hold my own with that guy someday. Yeah, I'll I'll show up for a tiny part. Nobody's fool. I want to fucking go toe to toe with Newman. And I think like Willis, I, I we love Willis. Yeah. I adore him. He's one of my favorite movie stars ever. That's my thing. I'm like, and like he has like half a dozen. Like Twelve Monkeys is my favorite Willis performance. Yeah, because he's just so like raw and emotional and sad, but he's also kind of doing the action movie. You know, like he's still he's tough and he's strong. That's the thing in that he movie. could you know, do better than anyone else. That, just like bringing that sort of level of weird, lonely sadness to genres that you do not expect that from. And from you wouldn't expect it from this guy who mm -hmm. seems like he could fucking make the whole world revolve around him. Um, what's the uh, you know, obviously like Moonrise Kingdom. Like, so I mean, there's so many Moonrise. great performances, the Shyamalan movies, like that you like you said, but yeah, it's interesting, especially with Die Hard. It's like he follows it up with so many movies. Two of his most famous flops are right after Die Hard, right? Uh yeah. Hudson Hawk and uh Bonfire of the Vanities. Ford Fairlane. Oh, the Ford Fairlane, not Ford Fairlane. That was the other guy. Yeah, Hudson Ford Fairlane is yeah. uh, the Dice Man, of course. Same director? It is. It, They're it both is, Rennie yes. Harlan, right? Yeah. Or no, no, no. Michael Lehman did Hudson Hawk. Yeah. That's right. Rennie Michael Harlan Lehman, who did, did Heathers, did yes. Hudson Hawk. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. I mean, Hudson, like, Hudson Hawk's pretty good. Like, Hudson Hawk is, like, yeah. unfairly maligned. It's also, I think it was viewed as this, like, vanity project of, like, right. someone stopped Bruce. He's gotten out of control. And you watch it now, and you're like, this is the weirdest vanity yeah. project of all time. I wish our movie stars were making weird personal swings like this. Bonfire of the Vanity is, like... Everyone was like, he's miscasting mm. that. I don't think he is. Yeah. I have always defended the character. His in that the movie. character in the book was British. The character so in the book is like, a totally different type, right? Yeah. And like, he's not doing that. But I think he's he's funny. It's Hanks who's is lost at it's also, that movie. That's just like, that's not a safe move. No, not at all. I mean, that movie is fascinating. He uh, has this sort of like awkward stumbling period in the early 90s where some of them are hitting and his flops are really sticking to him. Yeah. But all of them, the flops in particular are like, interesting strategically um, and they speak to a guy who's like i've been waiting to have the opportunity to dig into stuff as an actor and i want to try some shit and i want to work with some interesting directors we, we got to start winding down Griffin. yeah we do uh we should we talk about the christmas movie thing at all is it completely over discussed it's, at this point it's definitely a it's definitely a christmas it's movie. not it's christmas because it came out in the summer but it's set a christmas well time. what's crucial actually in our research is that the studio liked the christmas vibe they were like there's not a lot of christmas in la movies and we like that we like that this has the christmas in la thing going for it it was like a specific thing set yes. up from the beginning right. of like this gives it's us a it's not some this gives us observation that evil millennials came up with later it was always there right. and christmas movies especially the shane black variety which i know this is not 
not technically a Shane Black movie, but it's sort of, you know, right. in his People retrofit it into being a Tony Scott Shane Black movie when it's neither. <laughs> but, like, is about, like, you know, you find your people. Yeah. Like, in Christmas movies, right? And you're in dire circumstances and you find your people. Like, you know, the... Well, and I think with, the, the loneliness... That's what this is about. ...of that sort of... Oh, it's very Christmas. You step back. You have the Scrooge-like moment of introspection. What are the relationships I fucked up? Who do I want to be with? Who do I want to spend this with? It just heightens the whole feeling of this guy going there to try to have a conversation to fix a relationship and fucking right. it up. And then, you know, obviously, run DMC, right, at the end there. Well, yes, uh, I mean... Beautiful use of, of a Christmas and Hollis. Yeah. Um, another shout-out I want to give... Um, for uh, uh, Alan Rickman, mm -hmm. uh, for a movie to watch if, if you haven't seen it. Have you ever seen a movie he did with Madeline Stowe called Closet Land? No. Never seen, never heard of that movie. Do yourself a favor and watch it. It's a two-hander, just the two of them in it. But it was hmm. a movie that was, I don't, it wasn't sponsored by Amnesty International, but they mm -hmm. were involved somehow because it's a movie about torture. And it's, it must have been a play. It's yeah, the two of sure. them, and he plays multiple parts while being the same person. He's an interrogator who's trying to get her to confess to something or to break a political prisoner. And but it's shot very stylistically. It, it's Bill not Pope. like a, a a film that's kind of uh, set in the almost in the real world. She is the audience is kept as off center as she is the, the plot of the movie is she's dragged into this thing and she has no idea what's going on and this dude's job is to break her and so in the process of the the flick he gets to play a few different characters in, in his attempt to break her down and break not just her spirit but her mind psychologically it's a fucking fascinating movie you can probably find it on youtube Wild. I want to watch this movie. Rickman yeah. apparently thinks of it fondly. I mean, like oh, when I he was great in it. When I think of Rickman early, I think of Truly Madly Deeply, which yeah. is like a huge movie in Britain, obviously. Yes, and beautiful this, movie. This movie he did with Poliak Stephen Polyakov, who's a great British uh, director, called Close My Eyes, which he's amazing in. Mm -hmm. Like he always the best thing about Rickman is just that he always kept doing that stuff even yes. while he's like also yeah he'll go to Hollywood he'll do the big even, movies even yeah. after Die Hard and after um, Robin I think Hood it, was, it, it might have been before Robin Hood but remember he does a bit part in the January Man <laughs> wow he is uh, Kevin Klein's painter friend who's very eccentric um, and it's a, like it's a very non-showy part yeah um, but he's in it, and he's yeah. absolutely memorable. That feels like a Ben's choice. I mean, absolutely. Uh, it's a big Connor Ratliff reference point as well. I mean, that's that's the thing with him. It's, it's like Rickman never gave a bad performance. I think he is truly a guy. You will throw out that when's he bad sometimes. I mean, I, he he's a good example for it. I mean, he was in the, one of the most notorious stage productions of all time, which Anthony and Cleopatra with Helen Mirren, which people were like the worst shit they've ever seen. But obviously, really? I didn't see that. I didn't see that. Yeah. Uh, I, he was always good. Yeah. I've never, I, mean, I, I have not seen everything he's done, no, but he's I have never found him less than incredibly interesting to watch. And part of that is perhaps just the thing of like, that guy basically lived a full life before he became a movie star. Yeah. He was formed, you know? And he was just like a And had a life outside of movies. He wasn't somebody that whose life outside He's of not films some, like, defined business by his job. Guy, yeah. Right. yeah. Yeah, yeah, Showbiz guy. Yeah, and similarly, you know, it's, uh, it happened for Bruce at a younger age, but they talk about, like, um, what's uh, uh, Glenn Gordon Caron? What Moonlighting creator's name? Uh, you, you got it. Glenn yeah. Caron. Oh, Glenn Gordon Caron. Yes. Yeah. 
he wanted Bruce so badly and the network absolutely did not want him and right. they just kept on testing more and more guys away from it. The moment when it happened for Bruce, quote unquote, like overnight was a little bit late. Yeah, you know? no, he he's a John Hamm type. He gets famous in his 30s, late 30s. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. Or mid 30s. How don't know how old he is. Can we do the box office game, Griffin, or is there anything left on Die Hard? I'm trying to think of this. It's like, it's an impossible. It's an impossible. It's one reason it's great that Kevin's here because it's like, what are we supposed to say? Die Hard's good? You <laughs> fucking know that already. You know, the, these, these yes. like canonical films are tough to find new life in. Right. I think sometimes people expect us to be like, oh, great. Now, finally, the definitive Die Hard episode that Blank Check's getting to. And it's like, we're just going to be two guys fucking talking about a movie that's good. I loved it since I was a child. Like, it's it's amazing. Yes. Um, The thing about this box office game is Die Hard Opens Limited on 21 screens expands the next week. But I don't want to do the next week because the next week Midnight Run comes out and maybe we'll do Midnight Run someday. Kevin, do you have Midnight Run thoughts? I went to see that in a theater, brought my friends, and it wasn't an obvious choice for us. We were 18 years old, 19 years old or something, but I absolutely adored it. I was a massive Charles Grodin fan. I mean, that's the best. And watching De Niro, like nowadays, you know, thanks to the Fockers and shit and many other things. We've seen De Niro be funny, but that was one of the first times where you're like, this guy's fucking funny, man. Like, why didn't also, anybody ever use him in his He's very similar to McLean. This is kind hot. of blowing my he's mind kind of that those movies came out a week apart. They're like back 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 to back. And I'm like, they are both berf- perfect textbook berf. examples of the thing I think people get wrong so often in so many different areas. Um, yeah, they're just two of the most perfect films, in my opinion. Number one at the box office, however, on July 15th, 1988, uh, Griffin, is... Okay. Um, a gigantic smash hit comedy with the biggest comedy star in the world. Uh, so it's an Eddie? Eddie Murphy. Is it, uh, it's not a Beverly Hills Cop sequel? No. Is it Golden, Golden Child? Child? Not Golden Child. 88. 88. It's kind of his oh, last. it's Coming to America. Right, it's Coming to America. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the last really great movie in that run. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I really love that one. Yeah, Coming to America's great. But I'm just saying, like, after that, right, you're, then you're getting into Golden Child, Beverly 3. You know, you're getting into the, the rough. Is it Golden Child before? Maybe it is. Yeah. Is it? Yeah, you're right. It is. Yeah. No, I would say I would say that's the end of the first Eddie movie star chapter. I I I include Golden Child in my golden era. Good Um, era. Yeah. I remember going to see that and being like, they because they kept this part of it hidden in the marketing, Mm. but it's like Eddie Murphy fights Satan. (laughs) He sure does. I I honestly wish they had fucking like marketed the movie like that. But when I got into the theater, (laughs) it was an Eddie Murphy's movie. So I was going anyway. But during the movie, I remember turning to Ernie and being like, he's fighting the fucking devil, (laughs) man. This is amazing. Cause I guess it's right. A year after this is Harlem nights. Yes. And then another 48 that's he hours. Gets to direct. Eddie Murphy gets right. to direct. He, he one, sure man. does. But like Eddie that's... directs and then is like, I hate directing. I'm going to go back and make sequels to all my previous movies. <laughs> right. I'm going to do another 48 hours. I'm going to do Beverly 3. <laughs> yeah. It shows you how directing can affect you from time to time where you're like, oh, no, I'm not doing that again. And There's such a funny quote he has about it where, where people were like, do you want to direct again? He was like, no, it's a fucking terrible job. I remember being on set. And having like a, a art director come up to me and go, which pillows do you prefer? And I just went, I don't know. They're fucking pillows. I don't care. <laughs> it it's a like, job of, of answering questions at the end right. of the day. I mean, and, look, a lot of things go into yeah. it, but you are the repository of every answer for every question anyone's going to have. Yes. They're trying to get the movie out of your head. So 
all day long, it's people going like fluffy pillow or stiff pillow. And you're I like, think mm, he liked the idea in theory of not having anyone who was boss over him. And then he was like, I right. actually hate answering these questions and I don't right. really care to make the choices outside of my own part of the film. Um, right, right, right. Yeah. Which you can do as a director. Totally. Like, I don't get into the, the weeds about pillows and shit like yeah. that. I always feel like, look, you got a department. It's yours. You get right. to Delegate. make your movie. It's to me making my movie. So do it. Have fun. Go nuts. Yeah. As long as it doesn't fuck with my plot. Like express yourself. Yeah. Uh, number two, the box office is new this week, Griffin. Maybe this is why Die Hard is limited. Okay. Um, it is the final film in a franchise. Uh, action thriller franchise. Okay, so it's not, it's not Death Wish. It's not no. uh, Dirty Harry. It is Dirty Harry. I always thought none of them are in the 90s. None the of them Deadpool? are in the 90s. So it's, it's the, the Deadpool. Deadpool I always is, thought that was like 91 for It's 88. I mean, he's okay. pretty old okay. at that yeah, point. No, no, it's, no, uh, yeah. yeah, the Deadpool. Buddy Van Horn film. Uh, Liam Neeson's in it. Yeah. Patty Clarkson is in it. Yeah. I've seen it. Jim but Carrey is Jim in Carrey's it. Jim Carrey's it. That's the thing. I yeah, feel like Jim it Carrey's has, in it as well. It gets mostly remembered for its supporting cast. Its most lasting legacy, though, is Deadpool. Correct. Yeah, very much. Isn't it weird that that movie has that title? But yeah. to think the uh, dirty, the final Dirty Harry movie coming out the same summer as the first Die Hard movie when Clint was the first choice. And if Clint's in the movie, the legacy for this film is probably it begins and ends as at, oh, that thing's like pretty well directed. Yeah. Uh... But beyond the fact that Bruce transforms the movie, I think a lot of the discoveries don't happen if it's Clint and he's coming in going like, hey, this is who I am as a movie star. This is what happens in a Clint movie. Yeah. At this point, he basically only directs his own films or, or works with his three guys. Yeah, with guys who are basically ghost directors right. for him. Yeah. Um, it's not the best Dirty Harry movie. I've having watched them all. It's okay. Uh, number three at the box office is a film we've covered on this podcast. It's a huge hit. In uh, family film. Is it Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Been out for a month. This is, uh, a, this is a pretty good Eden yeah. at the Cineplex. Uh, if, if you're within this month able to go see fucking Die I mean, Hard, Roger what? Rabbit, Midnight Run, Coming to America. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, so saw, I saw all three, all four of those movies um, in a theater at the movie theater I now own. Um, you know, uh, some other movies you could have seen that are not in the top five, but Bull Durham. Great uh, fucking oh, movie. Love that movie. You know, uh, well... Crocodile Dundee 2. Bad movie. Mm -hmm. We've covered on the podcast. That film is insane. <laughs> um, okay, so number four. It's yeah. a Disney film, an old Disney film. It's a re-release? Re -released. Yes. Old. Is upsetting. it Snow White? Oh, slightly newer than Song Snow White. Song of the South? No, not that upsetting. Less upsetting. <laughs> okay. Uh, Pinocchio? No. Uh, I mean, this is just you Dumbo. No. These are all great guesses. Upsetting is the clue I'm trying to go off of. This here. one always really gets me. This is my favorite Disney film of these. Bambi? Sort of Bambi. Okay. Upsetting in that way. Yeah. Emotionally wrenching. Yes. 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 Uh, and just beautiful. I'm yeah. a huge fan. No, it's guy. a beautiful movie. Uh, afraid to show it to my kid. Uh, number five <laughs> uh, is a comedy uh, launch of a huge star. Well, he's already sort of famous, but this is his big moment. Okay. It's Gets not an SNL nom. guy. No. It gets him an Oscar nom. Yes. He's not known as a comedy star now. Oh, it's Tom Hanks and Big? There you go. Man. Another great movie you could have seen. Yeah. I assume you saw Big as well. I saw that in the theater as well. 
I saw every movie you're mentioning. This right. is peak movie going for me. So, you, so I saw that. As well. You saw Short Circuit Two in a theater. That's number seven. I that's sure a, did. That's a you bad saw sure Number five. On the rocks? Hey, number don't five say is that. Alive, but we <laughs> it's lost not a favorite. Yes, <laughs> number five is alive. You saw uh, Arthur Two on the Rocks. Did you see that? That's a I tough did. One. I was a massive, massive Arthur fan. Hey man, hey, so I couldn't wait for Arthur Two. And boy, I was I, I was disappointed. Did you see the uh, Corey Haim, Corey Hell Feldman film, License to Drive? Not in theaters, but I did see it on video. After that is that. also in the top 10, along with uh, Crocodile Dundee 2, previously mentioned, which yeah. is a film that starts out with him fishing with dynamite in the Hudson River. You it, think it's got maybe the greatest opening scene in the history. You think of you are in for a great time, and then everything else in that movie is terrible. We did Patreon episodes on them, uh, Kevin, during deep uh, pandemic lockdown. We and we were like, Crocodile you know what? They're all Dundies. short. Let's knock them out. Let's, in one sitting, Watch Just all watch all fucking three in a row. And we watch one, and we were just sort of fascinated by how big these movies were, and we're a little too young, and we miss them. And we're like, let's watch them cold, all three, in one sitting. First one, we're like, I get it. It's charming. It, didn't, it doesn't reinvent the wheel, but it fucking works. It's a crowd pleaser. Second movie starts with him fishing with dynamite in the Hudson River. We're like, okay. This I is, think this my man great. leveled up. Yeah. I think he knows he's playing with house money now. And then immediately turns into Bad Rambo. Yeah. Have a you seen that, Croc that has Dundee almost too? zero jokes in it from that point on? It's just a bad revenge thriller. Yeah. Um, that's it. Wow. Hard. Thank you, Kevin. I mean, like, we're going to wrap oh my God. up, I think. Kids, yeah. thanks for having anytime. It's always a joy to sit around and movie geek out with both of you. Oh, You're the best. Get out of here. Um, you guys know your shit, man. It's hey. fun. You, I, do you actually well. hear this is the highest compliment I can make. I'm going to watch Die Hard tonight. Hey. Hell yeah. My my favorite thing, Kevin, is when you pull out a. Uh, uh, I'm already forgetting the titles, but when you're like calling out the deep cut Rickman Willis things, Closet Land, maybe mm, I'm right. gonna go watch that. This thing looks good. I just I love how much of a, a an omnivore you are as a, as a movie fan, and I feel like you're I. It's so weird. I, I feel and you know like what? Am, it is on YouTube. But I, it, <laughs> it's it's, it's, it's it. on YouTube. You know <laughs> the fucking landscape, my man. I remember I was at, um, we were doing uh, screenings of Spaced, you know. Uh, uh, um, the Edgar Wright series? Um, Edgar Wright series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we did it out here. This was years ago. It was right before Quentin went off to make Inglorious Bastards. Okay, yeah. So he's between um, uh, Grindhouse yeah, yeah. and Inglorious Bastards. And, and Grindhouse, I guess, didn't make as much money as he hoped. So he was a little down in the dumps mm -hmm. and stuff. So we're we're at the spaced thing, and he's friends with Edgar. And so it's it's Edgar Simon and um, the actress whose name escapes me at the moment. Jessica Hines. Jessica Stevenson. Jessica. That's right. Yes. Jessica, she, who was also has that wonderful scene in Shaun of the Dead, where oh. her yes. party meets their party and stuff. It's so fun. Um, so we did that. We showed a few episodes, and I did Q and A'd with them and stuff, and then opened it up to the audience, and Quentin was there as well. So afterwards, there's like at the this was at the uh, Cinerama Dome, mm -hmm. part of the Arc Light at that point. Arc Light's gone, but the Arc Light had this deck that you can go out near the bar and have like private events and stuff. So afterwards, we're all out there on the deck, and we're sitting around talking. It's me and Simon and um, Edgar and Quentin. Quentin's getting ready to go over to Germany uh, to make Inglorious Bastards. Like two days later, he's getting on a plane going to Germany. So as we're having this discussion, we're talking about movies and. Simon Pegg said something like similar to what you said, where he was like, man, Kevin, you like, you know, a lot of movies. And he wasn't part of the conversation. He was adjacent to the conversation. 
But it triggered Quentin in such a way where he turned <laughs> to join the conversation. I know Billy, movies. Like it was a challenge to a wasn't duel. That. It was for it wasn't like, hey, I know movies too, but it was him going. Kevin doesn't know movies. Kevin knows <laughs> mainstream movies. Right, Kevin right, knows right. Star Wars and all the big movies. He's going, he doesn't know everything, and he really doesn't know obscure things. And I was like, well, he's right. I guess he's right. No, but I, I think so whenever he, somebody's yes. like, you're an omnivore, I always go like, well, he's the omnivore. I just I, like what I, I, I like. Well, I'll well, say he, He's got this, like, it seems, this repository right. of, like, video movies and, like, crazy, he's like, Italian B movies and, like, all this stuff. The right. right. He's encyclopedic. What, and I've talked about this Or he'll this be like, oh, you. that guy did 12 episodes of fucking Matlock, and you're like, how the hell do you know that? Like, you yes, know, like, right, that right. shit, like... But I've talked about this with you, Kevin, that, like, you, you talk about movies all the time in the public sphere. You know, you're doing events at your theater and your podcasts and interviews and all these sorts of things. But very often, the things you get asked to talk about are your own films and sort of the big genres, the superheroes, the sci-fi, right. the things that people know, like Star Wars, that you grew up with idolizing. And the thing I love about having you on our show is that you start pulling out, like, forgotten 90s movie star dramas. Right. <laughs> you know, which it's like, you know, you're an omnivore. You like every type of film. I do. I'm a big fan. Have you guys ever done Michael Ritchie's career yet? No. We did a Fletch episode. We did do Ben's a Fletch episode. Yep. Yep. That's right. For the Bad News Bears, though. Yeah. Come on one back. One of the man. greatest American films ever made. Smile. Um, Smile, another one. The Candidate. Yeah. Another it's one. really good. Funny Daniel Farm. Is really good. Another one. Yeah, I, he's got a, he's, no, that wasn't Michael Ritchie. Funny Farm was uh, George Roy Hill. Oh yes, um, okay. Then I'll hold Fletch, on to that. that. Was the movie. yes? No, Fletch. Fletch is a big uh, Ben Hosley movie. Fletch lives, not so much. Yeah, yeah that one's not. But, but Fletch lives has the one moment that still makes me laugh to this day, where their chant is as simple as "scum, scum, scum." <laughs> go back from where you come. And just remember that, of course, you were you were trying to revive Fletch for like 10, 15 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah you were going to yeah, do yeah. it. I was involved for a minute there. We right. tried to buy the rights for Ben, but they they outbid us. Those fuckers. Ham, and ham and wound up in the hands of the, the. Did you like the John Ham? I thought it was uh, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So did I. I just want them to make more. I was of them. a. I was a fan of the books, the Gregory McDonald right. books, yeah. as well as the as the movie. So when they did that one, I was like, you know, that that's exactly who Fletch was in the books. He was like, you'd want to fuck him. He was charming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and yeah. and like every woman wanted him, and he was like he had been in the military, so he was like strapping. So John Ham like really felt like. Yeah. The incarnation of Fletch from the books. Right. Our our version, our take was going to be more like he's a podcast producer. All right. And he that is handsome, sense. but like less of a John Hamm type. All right, Griff. But I got to go home. Funny. Really funny. Uh, Kevin, thank you so much. Uh, Such a pleasure, kids. Anytime you need me. And everyone else who's listening, you like movies, come down to Smart Castle Cinema. I was going to say. Kindlands, New Jersey. Uh, we, we, we are working to put together an event. We want to we wanna do a screening. Uh, yeah. Hosting there. Hopefully this summer. Uh, tried to do it last summer and things didn't line up. But yeah. uh, hopefully we'll be able to announce something soon-ish. Uh, and at fun. the time this episode comes out, uh, Masters of the Universe Revolution will have been out for a week or so. Sure. Uh, which I'm immensely uh, posting end of Feb. Yeah. I think it's a great, a great season. Griffin is absolutely fantastic. He's the uh, bomb. as our orco. As, orco. Uh, as I talked about in the last episode on when I was here, stands uh, for uh, our second season. He's uh, to, to pun intended. He's an absolutely magical orco. Well, no, 
but I, I think the whole season is uh, so great. And I think the the now 15 episodes that will sit together on Netflix are a really satisfying watch right. in totality. And hopefully uh, and we get to make crossed, more we get to add five more. I know. Teddy told the me the, the sort of season three <laughs> arc as it's mapped out. It's so good. It is really, really cool. It's so really, hopefully really cool. we get to do it. Yeah. But if nothing else, I got two action figures out of it. So thank you for that. You did, man. And you, uh, you, I thank you because you gave him such heart and such soul that uh, when we were in the, I said it before on the other episode, when we were in the writer's room, we were like, let's just make Orko so cool that people want to get tattoos of him. And we've seen yeah. it. And I have seen many, or our Orko, not I'll, the I'll Orko send you pictures when I Mass see them out in the wild. Your yeah. Orko, yeah. Yeah, yeah So you did well. it. You did it. You connected. Well, that was... In spite of the fact that I... You know, didn't necessarily. Sure. Your Orco definitely did. That was my uh, goal, but I was uh, fighting very hard to try to get this role before I had access to see any scripts. And I didn't know if I was going to be trying to force a lot of emotion into a guy who still mostly just made magic tricks go wrong. And my job right. was made very easy by the way the character was uh, was written, the material you gave. I, I just I kind of just had to say the words and it worked. You're, ma you're you're fantastic. I don't want to say you're magical again, but I will. Yeah. You're magical. Well, magical. you're magical. We all agree Griffin is magical. David, you're magical. <laughs> Thank you. And Ben, you're magical. Hell yeah. Hey. Uh, jersey's on. Uh, thank you all for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you to Marie Barty, associate producer on the show, AJ McKeon, production coordinator and editor, along with uh, Alex Barron, uh, JJ Birch for our research Pat Reynolds mm -hmm. and Joe Bowen for our artwork. Lane Montgomery, the Great American Novel for our theme song. You can go to blankcheckpod.com for links to some real nerdy shit, including our Patreon, uh, Blank Check Special Features, where we'll be doing a Die Hard 2 episode, uh, a one-off to fill in the gap between the McTiernan entries, and also are doing our Terminator franchise commentaries right now. Yes, that's true. That is good. Mm -hmm. That is good. Yes. I think it's good. And as always, yep. it's a fucking Christmas movie. <laughs> this is not worth debating. It just is. Yeah.